0: This is Matthew. Before we get into the conversation with Tim Holt, a few notes on episodes. I had some feedback from the previous episodes about the fast forward effect I included in the edit. As a result, I have re-edited the previous two episodes to reduce the volume and length of those effects. I apologize to anyone who found them uncomfortable. Please be assured that should I use the effect again, it will be quieter and shorter. With regards to upcoming episodes, Christian Evidence Society is once again running a series of online seminars which Andrew and I will be attending and reviewing, the same as we did last year. Darren will also be joining us again. These run for four consecutive Tuesdays starting March 1st. If you wish to join in on these there is a link in the show notes to the appropriate page on the Christian Evidence Society's webpage where you can register to attend. The sessions are hosted by Eventbrite and there is no cost. The web link also includes a link to the videos from last year's sessions, so if you listened to our reviews last year, you can also view the original sessions and see if you agree with our thoughts. Hello, everybody. welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. This is your usual host, Matthew. I'm running solo for this show, and the reason why I'm running solo for this show is my guest is uh, Tim Hull. Say hello, Tim. Hello. Hello, everybody.
1: Thanks for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Tim. And the reason why it's going to be just Tim and myself is Tim and I have a bit of a history going back a couple of years on Facebook, on the Unbelievable Facebook group. And I'm sure most listeners are familiar with the Unbelievable podcast. So Tim and I have a bit of history in various interactions. I can't even remember when it was we first interacted, Tim, but I'm sure it was a couple of years ago uh, at least. Sometimes those conversations have been a little bit spiky and sometimes not. But I think over that time, and I'm going to let Tim agree or deny this at his own leisure, but I I believe there's been a bit of respect uh, earned between us both. I certainly liked him. But sometimes the conversations that we have don't reach a a satisfactory conclusion. Um, Again, I'm going to let Tim agree or deny that at his leisure. No, I I I agree with all of that. OK, thank you. So we're we're starting with agreement, which is always a good place to start. So I thought, actually, what would be a nice thing to do is have Tim on. Let's have a live conversation together. No agenda in play. The only stipulation that I've given to Tim is I'd like it to be a friendly conversation. I don't want this to be a debate. I'm, I'm not a fan of debates. I've said that uh, on this and I certainly don't want raised voices. I want this to be a conversation about various things, saying it out here now to Tim, No question is off limits. The worst that can happen is I'll say I don't want to answer that and we will have a conversation and see where we go. So we're going to touch quite a lot of things which probably means we're not going to go deeply into any specific subject but hopefully what will happen at the end of it is I'll have a bit of an understanding of where the two of us are, where we agree which I think would be a really good thing So I'm not sure that I'm not even i'm less clear on what we agree on than what we don't agree on which is <laughs> probably a bad place to start so <laughs> let's try and remedy that first right and, right and and see see where the conversation goes so welcome on to still unbelievable tim tell my listeners a little bit about yourself
1: Yeah, Matthew, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, My name is Tim. I'm currently a pastor at a church uh, just north of Charlotte, uh, North Carolina uh, in the States called Image Church, and I also am the executive producer for a YouTube ministry called The One Minute Apologist, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. And I also have my own channel called Dealing with Deconstruction. So my channel specifically is trying to address some of the reasons that people leave Christianity. If maybe they're on their way out of Christianity, they're starting to— just really question the faith. Uh, something has, you know, in a sense, triggered them, right? And that's that's a, an official word. I talk about that. There's a trigger event. I'm not just using it as like the, you know, you know, snowflakes get triggered or whatever. This is a trigger is there's actually a trigger event that causes people to start questioning their faith. There's a variety of those different trigger events. And I want to try to catch people and deal with some of the things that tend to trigger people on their way out. And then, uh, you know, talk about some of the the setting conditions that people find themselves in, like a legalism or like an over textualist or like an over spiritual, super charismatic, because some of those things can be the setting conditions can then lead people on that journey or set them up to be deconstructing or, or an essentially disaffiliate or leave christianity altogether so i think matthew that's where you and i were you know kind of talking a little bit about some of that you're in my dealing with deconstruction group as well so we have some and conversations yes. there and again you've always been cordial and nice and yet we oftentimes on facebook we don't get a chance to kind of really dive deep and are just limited by language and time and whatnot so having this conversation is fantastic i'm, I'm really excited about it
0: Thank you, Tim, and thank you for that compliment. I, I'm aware that on social media I'm not always cordial, So, but I'm aware that when I'm in the dealing with the construction group, I'm in your group, not my group, and so I probably behave better
1: in that group than I do in the unbelievable group because that's much more of a bullpen. Right. And I would completely agree. I mean, my my uh, just ethos in the unbelievable group is that's a battleground. You know, I mean, I just view that as like you're stepping, you're putting on the gloves, you're stepping in the ring and their punches are going to be thrown. And I, I'm not I mean, again, that's not always the way that I am, but that's I, I'm I'm different in other groups because I see that group as that's what it has become. It's become a you know, and again, not everybody in the group is like that. Some people disagree with that. But that's one of the things that when I find myself in that group, I find myself in a defensive posture, with my my gloves up, trying to shield my face a lot of times, if you know what I mean.
0: Yes, um, I understand. Uh, So tell me a little bit about your earlier background. What was your route into Christianity?
1: My parents were attending a Roman Catholic church growing up. My older siblings, uh, my brother is eight years older than I am, my sister is 14 years older than I am, and they had both accepted Jesus by the time I came along. So I was just surrounded by, you know, kind of the Christian ethos and the Christian faith. And when I was 12, I went to a Protestant youth camp, and that's when I really felt like I heard the gospel message in a, a, a new way for the first time ever. It was like, man, like, holy cow, Jesus, this is so different. What I uh, had known growing up in the Catholic Church, and that's where I accepted Jesus. And then from then, I just I, I had a strong sense that I was to be in ministry. Um, you know. All through high school, I was leading Bible studies and you know very involved in the youth group. I was on the worship team playing instruments and, and being in the band. When I graduated, I went to uh, be in professional ministry work as a sound engineer for a band. I came back, ended up working at a church, and it wasn't until about 2010 that I really started to have some doubts. I started to question my faith. I uh, was faced with several questions. Some of them were emotionally driven from the church experiences that I had, feeling like that I was mistreated by the church, that I was unjustly let go from several churches. And so that really kind of started what now I consider my deconstruction process and really went deep into trying to find answers to three specific questions. What is the nature of truth? Does God exist? And did God raise Jesus from the dead? Again, that was around 2010, really dove deep into some of those areas while having conversations with others and just kind of looking at questions like the age of the earth and how does science fit with the Bible and uh, things like how do we interpret certain scripture passages just in a hermeneutical sense and uh, really started to kind of grow in that whole area and that has led to the opportunities for me to work with Bobby Conway as the one-minute apologist and be on staff at the church that I'm at right now and again several other ministry areas that I could go into detail with but that's kind of the broad brushstroke of my story.
0: Thank you Tim. For my own curiosity and this is purely my own personal curiosity. Tell me a little bit about the transition from Catholicism to Protestant Christianity. Would you classify yourself as an evangelical Christian now?
1: i wouldn't necessarily wear that label but i think most people probably would label me as that i mean again i would consider myself more protestant than necessarily evangelical okay. but it just depends on how people want to define that so most okay. of your listeners if you have any experience with church as you hear me talk or the things that i the theological positions that i have you would be like oh yeah 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 you're evangelical but i think that's kind of sticky It has some in america it has some negative connotations that i don't necessarily agree with so but yeah okay okay so uh,
0: tell me though about the transition from catholicism then to Protestantism. I'm I'm curious about that. It's probably a learning opportunity for me. Now, what are the differences uh, between Catholicism and Protestantism? What was it that made you want to walk away from that? Because the bit that stuck out for me with what you said was, you said your experience of Jesus was when you you experienced Protestantism and you converted to that, which makes me wonder, does Catholicism have its own conversion tradition?
1: Yeah, so that, that and that's that's a great question. So I'll do my best to kind of sum up some of that uh as best as I can. So for me, uh, I'll be honest and say that the driving factor for me as as someone that's bent towards being an artist and a musician was that I didn't feel like there was a place for me in the Catholic tradition uh where I grew up, right? So I could I desired to be part of like a worship team and to lead worship and the Catholic church that I attended, you know, had hymns and an organ and that was about it. Right. So automatically, like when I was 12 was when I started playing guitar. It's around when I got saved. And I was saying, man, I really want to be involved in the art. Some and some way I want to play music. And they were just like, that, that just doesn't happen here, you know what I mean? And so that started it off on a bad foot. Again, that's not a theological reason. That's kind of more of like just a, an inclusive reason, just the things that I desired. And so I knew that there was churches in the area where they had youth groups, where they had bands that played guitar and drums and bass and, you know, had keyboards and vocalists and they were jumping around and that was really where I wanted to be. And so that was kind of when I went to the Protestant youth camp, that's what they were doing. There was a full band on stage, just, you know, guitar, drums, bass, keyboard, four vocalists. I was just like, wow, that is really cool. I feel like I could fit in to that worship team, right? So it's it's always about Jesus, but for me initially, the reasons that I started questioning my Catholicism was more around where I could fit in, right? It wasn't until later, it wasn't until I the kind of the deal that I had with my parents was you have to get confirmed in the Catholic Church, and after that you can kind of do whatever. So as I grew older, you know, 15, 16, and again, I'm not like this super intellect where I dove into all this theological uh, you know, Uh, information. But I started to ask questions of my my catechism teacher, and a lot of the stuff just wasn't adding up. Stuff about the differences in the Bibles that they have. The Catholics have, you know, a different group of books. The way that salvation is worked out in the Catholic Church is slightly different than in the Protestant Church. I was just watching a video today from Mike Winger on YouTube, where he's kind of going through and looking at a response video that a Catholic apologist, Trent Horn, did on some of his teachings. And it's just really interesting some of the differences. So there's, there are several differences. Two-tier salvation is one of them. Things like purgatory is one of them the place that mary has in christianity is different between protestantism and catholicism but i would say probably the most significant difference is the way the authority structure so the authority structure in catholicism and again i'm going over this really quick so there's a whole bunch of details that we could go into is in catholicism you have kind of a three-tiered authority structure you have the magisterium tradition and scripture and so the magisterium is essentially like you know a group of theologians there's the the, the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope and stuff like that um and then you have tradition you have what what has been believed throughout the age of the church and then there's scripture and so none of those really conflict necessarily they all kind of go together but you could have things like the um the doctrine of uh, Mary's ascension, right, isn't found in Scripture. That's not, you, you don't look in any of the the Gospels or in the New Testament and find where Mary was ascended into heaven like Elijah was, but because they can find or they cite traditions in the past and because it was kind of a belief that was carried down, it is then solidified in what's called Catholic dogma, and Catholic dogma is, is slightly different than just beliefs. It's an actual technical term that is saying you must believe this in order to be a a good standing catholic so there's a little bit of ambiguity in the word dogma there but um and, and how we, how we use it but in catholic in catholicism dogma is very specific there's a very specific dogmas things that you have to believe and so when that got you know, essentially dogmatized, if you will, when that got put into the Catholic Church. A lot of those things, I'm just like, yeah, I think that there's a, a different and better way to practice the Catholic faith than to have these different authority structures and to have the magisterium and tradition. And so that's where you get the doctrine of sola scriptura that isn't shared by Catholics that most Protestants would hold to. And that is that the sole rule of the Christian faith, how you're supposed to live, is first and foremost primarily found in Scripture. That's kind of like I would see as kind of the major difference is that where Catholics are going to be appealing to things like the magisterium and tradition and also Scripture, the Protestants are, are primarily going to look at just Scripture alone for how they live. And and again, a lot of Protestant denominations don't hold the soul of Scripture, and that's where you get a lot of the denominational differences, and you get a lot of the interpretive differences, and you know, that's what you're saying. Well, I'm scratching my head and saying there's all these Protestant denominations, and But to be fair, there's probably over 500, I think, was the last number that I heard of different sects within Catholicism, within Roman Catholicism. So their pitch of let's have a unified, you know, under one umbrella Catholicism isn't quite true either. Now, again, granted, there's several different denominations in Protestantism, but that's an argument that they tend to give. So, yeah, I could go much more on that. But that's where when I started to do the research, there's these different authority structures. And I was like. Sola Scriptura seems to be far more in line with the early Church than than Catholicism.
0: Thanks, Tim. That was useful. And right at the end there, you, you answered an observation that I was coming up with, which was, were these dogmas of Catholicism giving a more stable tradition to the Church? And you're saying it seems like it, but maybe that's not quite so. But anyway, this wasn't going to be a conversation about bashing Catholicism. So I I didn't really want to go down that road. But that was something that was uh, occurring to me. So yeah, I was seeing that as I was was getting ready to be gracious there and say, maybe that gives a strength to Catholicism. But you straight away said, well, maybe not so. But I'm remembering from my own youth, because I was brought up in a very much an evangelical well in the missionary environment yeah uh, I, I can't remember how much i've told you about my background but yeah, yeah i was please. brought up in the missionary environment in zambia and that was very much rigid and young earth creationist and probably evangelical as well although some of the traditions that we see in evangelicalism now probably i didn't have in zambia in the in the 1970s Probably, yeah. i just dated myself but <laughs> uh, the the bit i was going to though was i remember in my 20s being in a church in the uk and being of the opinion that catholics weren't real christians and i don't know where that came from but it must have come from that early influence from my missionary upbringing i can't think of anywhere else where it, it would have come from i did change my view on that having been involved in various churches in the uk and getting and then meeting catholics and um although I, never actually been to a catholic service if you exclude weddings and um, mm-hmm. but actually meeting catholics and changing my mind on that and um, but i did have that opinion so i kind of question i was going to go there is is there a sense in some places that catholics aren't christians and what was what has the rest of your family done did
1: they move as well or are they still catholics i would frame it like this i definitely think that there are people that go to the Catholic Church that would consider themselves, you know, Roman Catholic, that I think are saved by grace, that they are in the body Mm -hmm. of Christ. I I don't think all of the teachings necessarily—and again, this is my own perspective—I don't think all of the teachings necessarily line up with Scripture. But again, I have a different definition of authority. I have a different, you know, authority structure than they would. So we would disagree on that. I know several people that I have great respect for, that are apologists, that we, you know, that are in the unbelievable group that are having conversations with atheists that are Catholics that I have a lot of respect for. We disagree on some of those issues. And I think we have a very cordial conversation around some of those. So I wouldn't draw the line necessarily around Catholics and say, these people aren't Christians or only, you know, again, Protestants or Christians or whatever. Uh, And I think that's one of my goals. I'll kind of just get this out. I think part of my goal in this conversation, other than just having a great conversation with you, because they always are, is twofold. It's number one, to, to, help your audience understand maybe that the umbrella of what they think needs to be believed for to be a Christian is maybe a little bit bigger than they probably originally thought. It's one thing that I talk about on my channel a lot. And I think the other goal that I have in this conversation is to say that uh, it's for hopefully people to know that Christianity can – you know be rationally defended or can be rationally held so i don't think either of us are coming into this conversation saying oh well matt's probably going to change his view or O oh, tim's probably going to change his view and by the end we'll have traded spots or you know be on the same side or whatever but again i enjoy the conversation and i hope your listeners say yeah Tim gave some reasonable, rational responses. I disagree. I don't. I don't think that they're correct, but that's what he did. So that those are my two goals in this conversation. And yeah, I hope I answered your question. I think the umbrella is a little bit bigger. Uh, I know a guy. His name was Greg. He was a Catholic, and he was the most Protestant Catholic I ever met. <laughs> and uh, he he did things that were a lot more Protestant just in the way that he lived. But he is a hardcore Catholic. He believes all of the you know catechisms, and he is very educated. And man, I love hanging out with that guy, Greg. He's, he's is great but we had lots of good conversations about some of uh, the catholic church and the and the doctrines that go with that so yeah
0: i'm sure there's much i could learn about catholicism and i probably need to have a conversation with a catholic in order to make the most of that learning opportunity yeah and yes there are catholics in the unbelievable group and just in case I, it wasn't clear enough earlier i do accept that catholics are christians i i see no reason to suggest otherwise and I will affirm your other comment that you said was, yes, Christianity can be defended rationally. I I will accept that and acknowledge that it. it doesn't mean it's true, but it right. can be defended uh, rationally. And if I was to change your mind, and again, that's not necessarily my goal, but if I was to change my mind, I would need to fill this beer up again. I think that's probably <laughs> what I would do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I would need another one because I'll probably be quite shocked. Right, uh, right. But there we go. But. Let's use this opportunity to move into a subject that I did want to touch on to, yeah. probably not this early in the conversation, but let's go with it. What is a Christian? That's, that's, probably, that's probably a really useful question to get out of the way and uh, define quite early on in
1: the conversation. Yeah, so I would say there's two ways to kind of answer this question. But a Christian is one who is saved by grace through faith, as it says in Ephesians 2, eight. And so they've they've had a salvific experience that God has come into their life, that the Holy Spirit has removed their heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, and that they are redeemed in the eyes of Jesus. I'm using a whole bunch of like Christian language because I'm not really sure how else to say it. You (laughs) you are (laughs) so I so that that's how I would present the gospel. Now the difficult part with that and I think this is kind of more of the essence of your question is how would somebody else know if somebody is a "Quote unquote true Christian. And that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult. So in the same way that an x-ray machine is going to be able to diagnose whether or not you have a broken arm, but it's not going to do anything to your arm specifically. It's not going to heal your arm. It's just going to look at whether or not your arm is broken. It's just going to give you a picture of the bone and whether or not it's cracked or not. I think in in a similar way, we can use people's works or people's actions to make a similar judgment. right? So those actions aren't going to save anybody Right in the same way that the X-ray machine isn't going to fix your arm, it's just going to give you a picture of what the arm actually is, uh, what's actually going on. So our works are in a sense aren't the thing that saves us, but they should give an accurate picture of what we believe and whether or not we are in line with Jesus and whether or not we have have been saved and have that experience, that internal experience of the Holy Spirit coming in and, and saving us and providing that um, regenerative right, making the redemption, bringing us back together with the holy with with god in general the triune god so again it's it's hard to answer it's like who is or what are the you know what are the beliefs of a christian right you could you could go down that road as well and i think beliefs in that sense inform action and so if you have right beliefs uh you should have right actions and vice versa those two things should go together i would as like kind of a what are the doctrines that must be in place that you know, if that's the the nature of the question, I would go back to things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed that are biblically supported, that are kind of the basis of mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis would write in his book of Mere Christianity. And I think beyond that, there may be other arguments that you could use that are kind of supported by those beliefs in the creeds that may be pretty important or may be pretty well argued, but they're not necessary in that sense. So, and I think and the other way that you could you could maybe outwardly affirm some of those things but inwardly not necessarily be saved and i think the the opposite would be true although i think that is less likely i think if you are saved there will be outward appearances of that you know and and i think fruits where yeah fruit of the spirit, get, though, yeah, the of the spirit. and and where it? i where i yeah where i think it gets a little bit sticky uh and this is one of the ethoses of of image church is when you start dealing with like mental illness right so you could have somebody again i just being able to de- being able to to really define whether or not somebody is dealing with a true mental illness or whether they're just defiant, right? So on one hand, you could have somebody, and I've experienced this, right? I've experienced somebody that intellectually having a conversation with them, they're affirming, you know, they're arguing for Scripture, they're affirming different beliefs, but they have a a mental disorder called BPD, borderline personality disorder, which is serious and very difficult to live with, Very just just in general, it's one of those worst uh, mental illnesses. And so you would look at their life and be like, this person is not saved, they're not exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, but they affirm all of the beliefs, but they have the mental illness that's making it virtually impossible for them to live in accordance with that all the time now there's mm-hmm. there's there's glimpses of that there's there's, you know, in, with any mental illness, there's long period of time where you're not experiencing the effects of the mental illness or not. And then something triggers it and it raises its ugly head and comes back or whatever. So so there is healing there. There's there's a difference. There's the spirit is working in their lives. But I think there's always that battle. So that's that's like the caveat. I think that can get muddy sometimes okay.
0: at risk of treading on dodgy ground here. Would are you saying that you would you affirm that that person is saved
1: or you hold a question mark over there? salvation just from my experience with that particular person that i have in mind i would say that yes that they were saved or that they oh, are saved okay. uh, just because i mean i did life with this person for four years i mean they were a volunteer on my team they were in our friend group i mean we had very close relationships as far as you know just platonic friends or whatever but there were times when i had to call the police on this person and there were times when yeah. i'd Drop them off at the hospital because I was afraid that they were a risk to themselves or, or hurting somebody else. I mean, you know, so yeah, so they're, I think that there, I, I would say, yeah, I, I knew enough about this person that just from my own judgment that I would say that, yeah, they were a Christian and that they were saved, but I can't be sure of that. I don't know their, okay. I don't know their heart. I don't, mm-hmm. that's up to God. I have no idea.
0: Yeah. I understand. I think I know where you're coming from. Not exactly the same thing, but I've known people who were Christians who claimed they used to be drug addicts. But they were able to throw their addiction after becoming a christian but i've also known a smaller number of people who have still struggled with their drug addiction into christianity and with drug addiction comes poor behavior yeah it comes a desire for money and if you haven't got the money for your fix you steal stuff so you can get hold of the money and those habits remain when you're an addict whether you're a christian or not and Those can be quite difficult times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, the the lead pastor of the church, Bobby Conway, who's the one man apologist, he has a mental health crash course he did with his wife because you know one of the things that he says is that the church tends to make everything a moral issue, and the culture makes everything uh, a mental health issue, and really there there's a uh, there's a there's a combo. Those two things should be brought brought in alignment. That some things are a moral issue, but they're the result of a mental health issue, and so that we need to address that in a different way. And I've seen the negative effects of the church excluding mental health as a as a proper diagnosis of what's going on and caused more problems when it comes to abuse and rejection of the church and whatnot and if i think if we could do a better job of understanding how those two things play out it's going to be a lot better portrayal of jesus on this earth for sure
0: okay thank you for that to go back to my earlier question about what makes a christian i've got my own thoughts Mm -hmm. on that particular question it'll be interesting to see what what you think yeah So I've got one of two thoughts on the answer to my own question. One is, all you need to do is genuinely believe. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Jesus has saved you, that genuine belief is all you need, and then you can achieve the label Christian. The other thought is believing isn't quite good enough because even Satan believes. What is needed is affirmative response from Jesus, To seal the salvation, for lack of a a better word, do you ever thought on those two options? So I I still tend to go with A.
1: Yeah. So I so the reason that I would hesitate with A is because you introduced uh, what was murky in that definition was what what is needed to be believed, right? And so the fact that yes, I obviously didn't define that, but right, right. Well, and it was elucidated by a little bit about what you said about Satan. is, Is Satan believes in Jesus, right? I mean, he, he doesn't believes believe
0: that, Jesus died for him, though.
1: Right. He doesn't believe, yeah, he doesn't yeah. believe that he's in need of salvation. He doesn't believe that Jesus' is, is death and resurrection yeah. is going to be the answer to his woes or his ills or yeah, whatever. Okay. And I think so the assumption is let's assume, though, that that is believed. Right. Yeah. So I would say that that would be a little bit different uh, in in essence. Now, the the question that has gone back for ages, right, has been what role do we does our will play in our ability to do that? Right. So our my, you know, Lutheran Calvinist friends would say that we have no ability to to choose God. We have no ability to believe that we are sinners in need of a savior apart from and a work of the Holy Spirit. And on the other side, my Arminianist friends, right, would say that, no, that's something that we can do, and I tend to land kind of in the middle, and I'm a what's considered a Molinist, and I would say that, uh, you know, essentially the difference is that God allowed for our—accounted for our free choices before he created, and so therefore it was our free choice, and— Uh, in this moment, we are still able to choose freely to accept Jesus, which is slightly different than the Calvinist position, but not quite the Arminianist position that says uh, that God might not know the future or didn't didn't know what was going to happen. So, but that's a whole other discussion. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, yes, it is. We could potentially touch on that, and you'll probably see this coming. The subject of the one and only post that I've made in your Dealing with Deconstruction Facebook group Mm -hmm. about the most common critique— that people like me get from other Christians is I was never a Christian in the first place. And most of the time that comes from people who are towards the Calvinist end of the the rainbow that, that you've just painted for me there. And I'm not at all surprised by that. I obviously reject it completely. So where do you sit on that? And let me test the water here and be absolutely blunt. Was I a Christian?
1: I don't know. And that, that's what I said. I mean, that's, that's really the answer that I, that I tend to give, because um, if I'm being consistent with my definition of Christian is, is one who is redeemed, I don't know whether or not you have been redeemed. I don't I don't know that status of you. That that's only God knows that. Again, I can look at actions or beliefs that you had in the past and make an educated guess. Uh, when I'm talking theologically, some would say once you're saved, you're always saved and you can't reject God. And so there's that position that you're introducing. But that assumes that the person was at one point. And again, I don't know that. So a typical response might be, so like I, I'm married, my wife, she named her name is Jen. She's amazing. But if someday in the future, if let's say you know, something happened and Jen and I got divorced or, you know, let's say she tragically died in a car accident and somebody asked me 50 years from now, did you know Jen? Right. And I said, no, I never met her. They would be like, well, yeah, you have, like, of course you have, like there's pictures and we have all this evidence and whatever. Like, you know, we can look back at your kids, right? Like you have kids. And if I just deny that I even know it, you'd scratch your head and be like, well, what, you know? So if being a Christian is on some level, tied ontologically to meeting Jesus, right? Either one of two things to be true, either you have met Jesus and now you're just in some sort of cognitive denial that you have, right? Which would be weird. And I'm not saying that you are, or you never met him in the first place and you met something that you thought was Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know the answer to either one of those things, and so I have no idea. I can't answer that question for you specifically, or even theologically, because my theology of once saved, always saved is pretty murky, so I wouldn't even go down that road. All I would say is, if you met Jesus, I would have a hard time thinking that someone would be able to then deny later that they had met him. Not that that's impossible. I just have a hard time believing that.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm tempted to be cheeky and say answered like a true politician. Right, I, right, right, I, I do appreciate that actually in what you've said there is a genuine struggle there and and a desire to be honest so yeah. i want to say i want to say thank you to that i, I appreciate it if i may hazard the guess some of my audience will be a little bit disappointed because they want to hear a christian affirm their former faith that that they were a christian let me just go down the stroke, because i think it's certainly yeah, important it's this is certainly important to me and it's certainly important to a lot of the the post christian community right it's a really good and effective way of garnering trust from that community to say, yes, you were a Christian. It's a few short words, but they actually go a really long way. Now, I understand theologically why some people can't say those words, and will say the opposite. I, I get that. But the difference that makes to people like myself, and to other former believers, those words, yes, you were a Christian, make an enormous difference. And the first time I was told, no, you were never a Christian, it took me by surprise. I knew it would come. I just didn't expect how soon it would happen. And I didn't expect the ferocity with which it happened. Yeah. And I wasn't prepared for it. And how i respond to that accusation is completely dependent on my mood sometimes i'll brush it off and move on because i know from experience those conversations never go anywhere i have even only this year 2022 tried again to have that rational conversation and it never goes well no matter Mm. how calm and rational i try to be about it If the other person is really embedded into their Calvinism, they simply won't get it, they won't accept it. And it's really frustrating. And I've got 15 years of experience of trying to have this conversation. And (laughs) every tactic I've tried has failed to deliver a different result. And sometimes I just go laser eyes nuclear on them. And yeah, that doesn't make me look good, but I feel a lot better afterwards. (laughs) Just to say as as much as for your benefit as the, the listener's benefit, Hearing that affirmation makes a very, very big difference. And I just want to say again, yeah, thank you. I I get that you're struggling with that. It's, It's a hard one.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, again, I think it's being honest and I, I appreciate what you're saying. And man, I feel, I actually have a video on my channel about this and whether or not it's advantageous at all to to tell somebody that, right? To be like, you're, you weren't a real Christian. Because I don't think it is because I don't, again, I don't think we're in a position to be able to know that. I just don't think we are. I think that's clear from scripture that we're not able to know that. We can make a good guess. We can, again, there, there could be evidences on either side, but whether or not somebody actually is truly saved, which I, again, I'm being consistent, and saying the definition of a christian is that you are you know saved by grace through faith and i don't know that at all so i do have a video on my channel and i can fully empathize and sympathize with where you're coming from i could imagine it on some level a similar situation to ask the question about like what does it mean to be an american right let's say that i moved i became your neighbor and moved just up the road from you there in the uk and you know Forty years down the road, right? I have the amazing, fantastic, wonderful English accent that you have, and oh, uh, you. you know, I've completely denounced all, uh, you know, um, American, uh, you know, just beliefs. And um, you know, uh, no, no, and someone's like, oh, are you American? I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not American. I'm, I'm, I'm totally British, man. I'm totally British. And uh, and they'd be like, well, wait a second. Well, where are you born? I was like, well you know, I was born in Pennsylvania and they were like, oh, well then you're an American. And you're like, eh, <laughs> right? And so it's like, what is it? Again, it goes back to that. What does it mean to be an American? Does it mean that like, are you born there? Is it citizenship? Is it uh, held to a certain ideals, right? I mean, that, that's a big debate. It's like, well, if you know, if America is built on Christian ideals and you're not a Christian, then can you be American? Right? I mean, we all these debates happen all the time. I'm not affirming that. I'm just saying I've heard people say such things. But like, so it's like, what does it mean to be an American? Or what does it mean to be British? Like, can you you know, can I denounce? my american views and move into you know the uk and say hey i'm now british and you know it's like well no it's like you're always an american in that sense if you define being an american as someone born in america then it would be impossible for you to denounce that so yeah it really comes back down to that definition that's why i started with that yeah
0: yeah 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 good one and on on the subject of uh, lighthearted nationalities i drink tea at work so i'm clearly english right I don't have a gun and I don't eat meat, so I clearly can't be American.
1: <laughs> well, that's funny because I don't have a gun either and I don't eat meat. And I, I don't know. You might, you might categorize me as American, so we'll see. That, but that's that's why it comes back down to the definition. And then I drink tea. I literally drink English breakfast tea every well, morning. There you go,
0: then. You're clearly not an American. Move right, exactly. That's what I'm saying, right?
1: We just, <laughs> that would just prove my point, right? Who knows what nationality I am now because I'm not American, even though I was born here. So, <laughs> right.
0: You, you, although you do sound like one.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, this is true. This is true. Um, I won't try on. I was practicing my British accent last night at dinner and my family said, don't, don't, don't do that. So, I was like, <laughs> OK, it's fine. <laughs>
0: um, sticking to the subject, let's stay lighthearted for a bit. Yeah. This, is, this is fun. We've been watching quite a few Netflix shows over the past year. A couple of the shows that you great people over there produce. Sometimes it's really easy to tell who the baddie is going to be because they're the one with the really bad fake British accent.
1: Right, right. But you're always, but you, but it sounds so intelligent, and everybody, and you know, that's why they're like, oh man, they're gonna outsmart us. Yeah. Sure. So
0: you know he's gonna be killed off soon, you know, because that fake assassin right. isn't gonna make it through to episode twenty, is it?
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly.
0: So, so yeah, so we'll have fun with that. Right now, where else we also going. Yeah, so back onto the real Christian, not a real Christian. So mm-hmm. I've got a few thoughts on. That one. So, so, going back to my previous definitions about belief versus affirmative action by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll be interested to hear what your response to this is. So, my feeling on it is it needs to be the belief aspect. And this is why I, I fall on that way because the, but Jesus literally says, believe on me and be saved, or words to that effect. Right. And if it's the, the affirmative action that's been required, and I now take the position that. God doesn't exist and Jesus, if he existed, wasn't supernatural, then that affirmative action could never have happened. So therefore, by that definition, I could
1: never have been a Christian. But it's worse than that. You're not a Christian either. Well, I would say... Yeah, so, uh, so I think your first point, if I'm if I'm gathering what you're saying, there is a strand of Christian theology, right, that says that you can walk away. That in the same way that you could accept Jesus uh, at one point, you can deny Jesus at a later point, and then you know your salvation is gone, right? There's a I think there's a verse in I think it's in First John that says they went out from us, but they were never among us, or they were never one of us, or something like that. Yeah. Um. And some people will interpret that context as being like some will say you were one of us, right? You did believe you did. You you, you kind of held the beliefs of our tribe, if you will. But then you denounce that later. And other people will kind of read that and say, well, then you you never actually believed. Right. You you fooled yourself. Right. You fooled yourself into believing or whatnot. I can affirm that in the past, people may have believed one thing and now they believe something different. The question then becomes when you believed that was that just something of your own will or was that a work of the Holy Spirit? If that's a work of the Holy Spirit, can you deny the Holy Spirit later in life? And again, there are some Christians that take that perspective. Other Christians would say, no, you you can't. Like you may be in cognitive denial, but you're still saved. And I know a number of people that are in that camp as well. I mean, a friend of mine in high school, you know, did that, you know, again, would say that he went, you know, did the altar call went forward. We saw life change. We saw him act different. We saw, you know, a whole 180 degree. There was a series of years where he was an intern at the church and he was, you know, serving on staff and whatever. And four years later, he was into drugs and, you know, completely denounced his faith and was, you know, an atheist and and all this other stuff. And he ended up dying because of a drug overdose. And when we did the funeral, the pastor said that, yeah, I think he's going to be in heaven. But like, I think he was truly saved in that moment. And he hit a rough patch. Right, that he, you know, he kind of didn't know what he believed, and so he was in. And so, so again, I think there's a strain of Christianity that takes that position as well. Again, and I just haven't done enough research in this area of soteriology to really come down and just say, this is what I think the scriptures say, because the way that I. The way that I understand what I'm most certain about in under this topic is that it's God that decides, not us. So it's okay. it's his responsibility.
0: Yeah. By the way, I'm feel free to grill me with questions. I feel like I'm asking you all the questions. So I'm very happy for you to push some questions back onto me. Yeah. Moving on a little bit then, would you ever be tempted by universalism?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I would take, I think it was Randall Rouser that said something along the lines of that I'm a hopeful universalist, but I don't think that it, it's supported by the biblical data. Right. So, and, and I may be misquoting that, and that might have been, you know, somebody else, Chris Date or something that, that said that. But yeah, I think, again, from my authority structure is scripture, and I would love for that to be true, but I just don't think it's supported by the by the scriptures.
0: Okay, fair enough. So then, moving on then to the uncomfortable topic of hell, what's your
1: position on health these are things i haven't thought about in a while so the, um yeah i would i right now i would say that i fall you, you don't in, obviously that you don't have to give a full rounded answer of course right and, yeah yeah so i just just know that i'm not like uh yeah know, no no i'm, I'm not giving a, an apologetic for my position in the segment i researched this a while ago this is why i landed and i kind of just left it at yeah, that um, you going to have be careful with
0: what you say because you can guarantee in 12 months time somebody on the unbelievable board <laughs> is going to pull out that clip right and, right exactly. stick it up on you and, and that's it your fate is sealed
1: yeah i would say that in line with you know you know Justin Briley of the uh, the unbelievable show and Chris Date. I'm I'm highly persuaded of the annihilationist perspective. The that there is a um, a rising of everybody and that's kind of talked about in Revelation. And that there is those that have you know disbelieved or rejected God, however you want to categorize that, will be destroyed in the lake of fire. That they'll be annihilated. And then those that have eternal life will continue to live on uh, in a relationship with God for eternity. So that tends to be where I land again. I've watched probably almost every debate that Chris Date has done on the topic and keep trying to find the other person more persuasive and I just don't. I mean I think he makes really good solid arguments. Chris is a good friend and he is really persuasive and I I don't believe him because he's my good friend. <laughs> I started I was a fanboy of his <laughs> and uh and got got the opportunity to have dinner with him uh, one time and that's when we became friends. So yeah. Uh, it was, uh, I'm persuaded because of his arguments, not just because I'm his friend, but yeah.
0: Okay. So can I be cheeky here then? Um, yeah. And because somebody will suggest it. So let me get in there while you've got an <laughs> opportunity to answer it. You're just taking that view because you recognize that the forever torment in the fire is not the action
1: of a loving God. No, I, I mean, I, I think there's ways to reconcile that. I think there's ways to reconcile eternal conscious torment with a loving God. I'm just not persuaded by the biblical evidence right. of that okay. so
0: and yeah, yeah I, I i believe you i don't really mean what i just said but somebody yeah. will be thinking it
1: yeah i mean again like i i would say again from like a more uh, you know from a eternal conscious torment position you know kind of the, the general the typical theology that was given would be something like you know, the C.S. Lewis quote that the hell is locked from the inside, the door is locked from the inside, that people are choosing to, you know, be apart from God. And that's really what what hell is. We don't know necessarily the nature of it. We know that it's bad. We know that we don't want to necessarily be there. We know that it's dark and we know that it is undesirable. Um, And there's some word pictures that Jesus tends to use about fire and again, lake of fire and stuff like that. But again, those are in the biblical sense, those are just stand-ins for things that are really bad that we don't like. And so I don't think he's, I don't think there's actually going to be fire necessarily there in the way that we think of fire it's just going to be bad is what we know um and there's lots of different word pictures about that so yeah i guess that i would say that people would say that they've rejected god and that they are in that place where they're saying i don't i don't want to do that for whatever reason whether they don't think there's enough evidence or whether they have some sort of you know deep-seated cognitive thing or whatever i'm not making any judgments on that i've heard the whole gamut of from the christian's perspective saying why they think people reject that i've heard atheists say that i'm genuinely seeking and i just i just can't be persuaded because of the lack of evidence and i'm saying okay i I believe both of you guys i just think there's a way to reconcile that with the eternal conscious torment position i'm just not persuaded by the biblical arguments of that fair
0: enough and it's nice to hear that affirmed i am not a fan of eternal conscious torment for obvious reasons (laughs) really i don't expect to be there but i don't think it's loving you know yeah. i think of it as uh, a parent and john steingard brought this up when he was on the show talking with uh, andrew and myself more than a year ago now mm-hmm. and he said becoming a parent was was an influential part of uh, his thinking about and, and challenging christianity i adore my daughter she's a teenager which means sometimes i get answered back to <laughs> and and i i've said it before i'd rather have it that way i'd rather have a daughter who answered me back and told me when she thought I was being annoying because if I had one that was always compliant out of fear I wouldn't know if she truly loved and respected me Mm -hmm. and because she's got that confidence we actually have grown-up conversations and I know that she's somebody who feels safe in my presence right and I'd rather have that so where I'm going with that is there is nothing she could do at all that would make me want to banish her from my life forever. Nothing a- at all. I'm assuming you're a parent and I'm assuming that you feel the same. I can't reconcile that experience as a parent with internal conscious torment. In fact, even annihilationism leaves me feel uncomfortable when compared in that light.
1: So the whole of the hell thing gives me issues for those reasons. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, a couple responses. I mean, not responses, but uh, a couple thoughts around that. I think one of the things that the church has done a not so great job about is making clear lines about what's kind of anthropomorphic language what's kind of relatable language in scripture and what is you know character or or nature of god and again this you, know, you could be like well that seems a little bit deceptive but i think there is a clear distinction between the holiness and the set apartness of god and our humanity and and our the way that we are now and in this in this current existence um you know bobby just mentioned this on sunday that there's a whole bunch of issues that have been kind of taught by the church in kind of a little bit of a murky way, and that has caused people to be disillusioned. And, and, and subsequently, that's sometimes often cited for their deconstruction. Things like prayer, right? What The nature of prayer and what prayer is and what how it, it happens and what we should expect from prayer sometimes has been held up and taught incorrectly. And I think the idea of a parent has often been taught incorrectly, too, that God is Abba Father, and then we kind of place some expectations on what that then means based on our own experience, but that's not quite analogous to the holiness or set-apartness of God. And so, you know, I think, there again, there, there's different analogies that we can use with that, but I think the church in general, there's several different areas, and I'm going to eventually address some on my channel, that kind of fit into that category, if you will. And I think the idea of parent or buddy or friend or whatever of God can— go too far and then mm-hmm. we can run into some different issues with that what that really means but yeah i agree with you that there's definitely some good arguments for wanting to eliminate the idea of annihilationism or even eternal conscious torment and have universalism be the way that it really is the, way the reality really is but yeah it feels more comforting <laughs> it does it does that's why i said i'm a ho- hopeful universalist <laughs> yeah, right i'm not convinced <laughs> by the argument <laughs> yeah. so that's yeah why so i started started there yeah
0: Okay, well, I won't try to convince you either way. Let's move along a bit then. Whenever I give my testimony, exitimony, whatever the right word is for an exit testimony, we need to find a way to mash those words together to come up with something slick. I always cite evolution and understanding of science as the major influence in in my leaving in Christianity. I was brought up as a fundamentalist, young earth creationist. It took a long time for me to shake off bits of that but it lingered around went into my 30s it wasn't until i properly accepted evolution and an old universe and lots and lots of stuff that goes with that that the cracks in my christianity started to come so do you have a firm opinion on that whole sciencey uh, debate there where where do you sit is it important where you sit in yeah
1: I, I do. I mean, and this is this is where we can get into kind of some of the, you know, maybe I'll start asking you some questions. But I think for me, I would tend to go with an intelligent design model, something along the lines of Stephen Meyer in that sense, uh, where I think that common descent is true, right? I think change over time is true. Whether or not I hold to uh there's a there's a group called biologos and they would basically just kind of adhere to the general naturalistic you know kind of methodological viewpoint of evolution i think i don't necessarily think that position is true i you know jonathan McClatchy's is another one that i i would tend to kind of line up with in that area but i think whether or not you hold to evolution or whether or not you hold to some sort of creationism i would say those are philosophical conclusions uh, not necessarily scientific conclusions would be how I would categorize it. So in the way that I'm thinking about it. Now, again, you could look at it from saying, yes, change over time is, is happening. But if you're set, if you have a presupposition that says that naturalism is all that exists, well, you have no other option other than naturalistic evolution. There's no other choice there. That's where I would kind of say, well, I have different options and I'm just looking at the evidence for all the different options. So for you, my question then for you would be, if naturalistic evolution, evolution isn't true, what, what if any, philosophical changes would you have to make if you denied evolution, if you deny naturalistic evolution?
0: It would depend what I denied it for, I, I think, would be the answer to that. I would need to know what was coming along to to replace it. Because as it stands now, I can't imagine a scenario where I would decide that or come to, sorry, let me rephrase that. As it stands currently, I can't imagine reaching a point where I'm where I doubt the truth of evolution. On in isolation. Yeah. If something else was to come along that was more compelling, that would give me cause to, to question evolution. And to rewind back, that was what caused me to quest to abandon my young earth creationism. As I understood more about evolution about the evidence for it and the understanding and some of the technical details, I realized that this actually explained the evidence better. Therefore, young earth creationism really wasn't a tenable position anymore, because it didn't account for the things that evolution accounts for. Therefore, i binned young earth creationism, but it, it wasn't like a, in an afternoon, I read the book and went, yeah, No, no, it, it took time. So right. it will be again, it'll be the same process again, to move from evolution to whatever would replace it. I would need to see what it is to understand what it is to learn more about what it is and then get to a point where what it explains and crucially why it explains it is better let's boil it down to a very specific example in chimpanzees and humans there's a marker in our chromosomes where in the human i think it's human chromosome two and three might be Mm -hmm. three and four fact check opportunity dear listeners to if you really want to check up on what i'm saying where two chromosomes in the human genome are fused together mm-hmm. so we have one fewer chromosome than chimpanzees right and we knew in advance that we had one fewer chromosome but we didn't know why and so someone said well maybe we always had the same number and the reason why we've got one fewer is because there was a fusing of two together and what we need to do is go and examine all the chromosomes and if there was a pair that got fused together. We'd find the telomere endpoints fused together in the middle of a chromosome. Mm-hmm. And so they went and examined the human genome, and there, they, lo and behold, around about chromosome three, they found these fused telomeres. So there was two, and very clear evidence these used to be ends because these telomeres go on the ends. So, clear evidence then of, of fusing together. And so that's used as some of the supporting evidence of mutations and differences in species, etc. So mm-hmm that's just one example obviously there, there's many so this new theory would have to come up with a way of explaining that uh in a succinct way and in a technical detailed way that was better than what we already have and then it would have to do it for everything else as well
1: right well uh again so something like um so uh, again you're, you you're you and your listeners are are going to balk that i'm saying this but in the same way that like uh a biogenesis right which isn't evolution so i'll get that out of the way <laughs> but but it would be uh it would be a result of it would be an effect of the natural laws right the na like it would have to be it would have to come about by a natural process what i'm saying is a biogenesis and evolution would have to have the same philosophical underpinning whether that's naturalism or supernaturalism or whatever you want. however you want to define that right so they're not the same they're not necessarily in the same category, but they have to have the same philosophical underpinning. So if we look at one and say um, a biogenesis can't have a naturalistic explanation for it, or at least it's unlikely given the data, then that would also at least free us up to say something along the lines of something similar for evolution. One thing that I like to point out is and a good friend of mine who's in the Christian ID movement, you know, teaching at a university, right? So he knows his stuff said anywhere that, that you find like panspermia in philosoph- or in scientific journals is a reference to, or at least most of the time, reference to intelligent design. So the fact that if there was, and, and Dawkins has even said this, right, that there is some other intelligent force, that's one option that's that's available, it that could be on the table, uh, somewhere in the universe that developed life and then kind of sent it off, right, to us, and it landed on Earth, and from there continued on, you, you know, so that would be, an explanation an explanation for the beginning of life on our planet right yep. and that would be an appeal to intelligence if we could look at the data and say this isn't possible based on everything that we know about our environment basically everything we know about RNA and DNA and how they replicate and what is needed and how a T, C, and G work and how proteins work and how they bind and all this other stuff, I'm not a scientist, I'm doing my best to just recount what I've learned, then an appeal to some sort of intelligence would be warranted, not because it's an intelligence of the gaps, but because when we look at things like computer coding, we say computer coding came about information has come about via an intelligence. And so when we look at the possible explanations, intelligence or agent causality would be one of those possible explanations um, for the existence of life on the planet. Now, if you got to that point, um, you were the proverbial audience, you. If you got to that point, then I don't see a reason that that couldn't then be extrapolated out into something like the the change of alleles over time in evolution, that the diversity of life on the planet, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, it suitably explains our diversity naturally. But right, right it, it, in terms of how life started, it just moves the problem back a step and it doesn't actually answer it and yes i get that i'm on board that i don't give a lot of credence to another intelligent civilization spawned our civilization because i think we would probably have seen some kind of evidence of the remnants of that unless it was like a superman universe and we were the last ditch attempt before their world exploded in a supernova and that and all evidence has been obliterated it's fun to think about But I don't think it really advances our scientific endeavours very much. There is a part of panspermia which is different and is wholly natural which again is interesting and has been hypothesised but and I think it's part of what we're looking for in some of our spacecraft and we could potentially find evidence of this and that is we had something in on earth that was ready you know like a soup because we had an earth with water on it near a sun it was having temperature fluctuations and all that the right kind of environment but maybe it didn't have the right ingredients and there's a an idea that elsewhere on a passing comment that either was from the early parts of our solar system or another solar system and it had microbes on it that formed in a different environment Right. And somehow they got to us. It crashed into Earth and that was the right ingredient to get it working here. So it was a naturally formed thing that landed on Earth. And again, that's interesting. We could potentially find evidence of that as if we were to find another object in space that had the right kind of thing on, because that hasn't met a planet. So that would probably still be in those uh, primitive stages. Right. So it's potentially possible that we could find evidence for that i'm not holding my breath for it though i'm yeah. i'm very much over let's look for it here on earth but while we've got spacecraft up in space let's keep our eye open and see yeah. if there's anything that's interesting there as well and in terms of that you know some of the moons of uh, jupiter and saturn we, we're we very very confident that some of those have liquid water on mm-hmm. possibly not getting enough heat from from the sun to be right. really interesting uh, so they certainly couldn't um, house complex life forms like us right but potentially microbes but the question is are they receiving enough heat energy from the sun to actually get anywhere right and i'm really hopeful that we'll land a spacecraft or one of those get to the water and see i'd love in my lifetime to i'd see a sample of the water from one of those moons <laughs> that would see be what awful. it's like is yeah. it pure sterile water or is it salty water with something interesting in it? Yeah. It would genuinely, genuinely make my day. I would love it. But sadly, I don't think I'll live to see that. I think I'm too old to be able to see that mission happen in my lifetime. But yeah. maybe my daughter will.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. So I. I so again, like, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think when it comes down to some of the, the debate between, you know, evolution and whether or not that can fit with Christianity and, and stuff like that. I I think those are interesting discussions. I think they're a way to reconcile some of those, um, the sacrifices that you might have to make on both sides could be interesting and, and, you know, maybe part of this conversation, but I think when it comes down to it, again, I mean, I've read, you know, several books The design revolution is, is one of them by William Dembski. And again, not all of his work is fully supported, but there are some interesting concepts in here that I think are some interesting arguments and points that he makes that aren't necessarily disputed. In that sense, uh, again, I was just watching a debate with Michael Shermer and Stephen Meyer. Not really a debate; it was a discussion. He was on his podcast. Um, but again, one of the things that Shermer uses said, "Well, yeah, if you got this great, you know, hypothesis, the God hypothesis, and you're laying out these this evidences in this book, how come, you know, these scientists aren't necessarily uh, convinced, right? And so you think it's, that's kind of a knockdown, drag out question. It's like that's it; that that ends the discussion. And I thought Stephen Meyer's um, response was interesting, and he said, "Well, there's this built in bias of methodological naturalism and so if if you're saying I'm not gonna let let that defined foot in the door well then that's always going to be a, a barrier for you and the um you know the evidence level is going to be much higher it's just not gonna entertain some of those thoughts or whatever it is so I think for me and you know again for our conversations I know that you were saying like well that that kind of put put the nail in the coffin or at least you know gave it a big huge giant kick right <laughs> down down the uh, uh, down the road of your, you know, deconstruction process. And I think that there's ways that you can reconcile some of those. And and I think that's kind of the interesting conversation that I'm still searching and, and like to have with lots of different people. So
0: I'll definitely give you that. You know, there are definitely ways that it can be reconciled. I have sympathy with the comment that you've just talked about. And the reason why I have sympathy with it is we don't know everything there is naturally. We you know science doesn't know everything. Nobody says that science knows everything there's lots of gaps in knowledge and every time we learn something new we also learn something that we need to learn so it's it's a poor phrase so forgive me saying it but my concern over opening the door to the supernatural option is if you haven't exhausted all the natural options but you say ah i don't know maybe god did it and i know i'm i know it's more complicated than that so please forgive me for for saying that if we do that, it is almost giving up in that you've gone. I don't know everything here, but I haven't found the answer. Maybe it's pixies in my garden. And again, yeah, I'm being polemical in my, in my language there, but I'm doing it to, to try, try to show the point. Like I hope the point has gone across.
1: Yeah, no. So again, I think, well, one of the interesting things that I'll say is that our, our audiences are different, right? So what I'm, so if I'm talking to the uh, listener that is saying like, man, I've loved this podcast uh, I really like Andrew and Matthew They seem great they're raising a lot of points but I grew up in the church and I'm just not sure I can hold on to this because uh you know there's this evolutionary thing going on here and it doesn't seem to fit with Genesis right so maybe they're they're you know maybe they're fairly st- you know, confident that Jesus rose from the dead, but then they're starting to wane a little bit because, you know, hey, ev- evolution's over here. What's going on with this thing? I'm talking to those people and saying, I think there's ways to reconcile some of that. Now, whether or not that would convince somebody that's an atheist and that's, you know, naturalist or materialist, however far you want to go with that. Um, yeah, that's up for debate. You can keep having the conversation. I think that's a great dialogue that you could have and keep looking at the evidence. But I also will say, I think at some point, that will start to break down and what, what your probability level is of that. So, for example, and again, I'm not a scientist. I, I want to preface that where I'm wrong. I, I'm totally willing to be corrected on some of this. But I, if I remember correctly, in, in Meyer's latest book, The God Hypothesis, he talks about just the improbability, like some work that he did at, at a scholarly level to know to figure out whether or not proteins could attach to uh, the DNA, right? That there was some sort of, improb- it was some high improbability, something like 10, like one in 10 to the 150th power or something like that, mm-hmm. of that you would get the right combination of proteins in order to be able to self-replicate and continue life on, right? Yep. We only have 10 to the 80th fundamental particles in the entire universe and the whole entire history of the 13.7 billion year history of this universe but he's saying in that there's just not enough time for all of those different diff- combinations to be tried and find the right one of 150 pairs on a on the back of uh, you know rna in order to be able to get the dna in order to continue the whole thing off there's just it's just mathematically just doesn't work the odds argument doesn't sway me at all I can see why
0: it's made. The difficulty I have with it is its retrospective odds. To give you an example, standard deck of playing cards, 52 cards, shuffle them out, etc. The number of possible combinations out of those 52 playing cards, and I haven't looked it up, so I don't know what the number is. If anyone's interested, you can look it up. It's really easy to do. But I have read that the number is so large that if you open up a brand new pack of playing cards, shuffle it for 20 minutes and have your your randomized pack the number of options for just that 52 pack of playing cards is so vast you have probably created a unique sequence of those cards that has never before been experienced in the number of packs of playing cards that have existed on earth the number of times they've been shuffled so these kinds of almost impossible odds happen regularly if i shuffle the cards and then go and look at the order and go, wow, it's one in bazillion chance that I did that. And look, I did it first time. That's not really very impressive because when you shuffle them, you're going to end up with a low probability regardless. And so when you go to chemicals in a boiling vat, something is going to happen. Something is going to react to something. The question is what? Now, if you're going to predict what would happen, you'd probably be wrong because the odds of you predicting the right reaction are quite low but something is going to happen. And we don't know how many of those reactions are going to produce something interesting. Even if you think of the human body, there are many different configurations and there are many different configurations of, of atoms and things. So in one respect, whatever it is that happened was going to be a low probability for that specific thing, but something was bound to happen. It was almost inevitable. The other way to look at it is some things are inevitable. There aren't low probabilities for them. Let's think about the water molecule, for example, H2O. Two, mm-hmm. two hydrogen atoms, one, one oxygen atom, and they join together into a stable molecule. And there's quite a simple reason why they join together in that configuration stable, is on the oxygen you've got two connectors, on the hydrogen you've got one connector, two hydrogen, one connector each, to the oxygen one. It is inevitable that those two are going to find themselves in this configuration because there's no other configuration that they can end up with. And it's nice and stable. So you're unlikely to get any other combination of, of three connected to an oxygen because the only other two that can connect to an oxygen is two hydrogen in a stable environment. So the water molecule existing like that is inevitable. There isn't another way of doing it. And so I'm imagining that when you've got that kind of physics and that kind of chemicals in a vat together in the early proto-Earth, there are some things which were inevitable because of pure chemicals and physics and the pure structure of the way things are. So throwing big numbers at it and saying, oh, it's really, really improbable that that thing happened. Well, maybe that thing, but something was going to happen. And that something just happened to be this, but it might have been something else but the fact that something happened was inevitable a chance of one
1: yeah again i hear you so let me take your card analogy and relay the the piece of information that we didn't necessarily get to quite yet um and that's on me is the idea of the specified complexity that needs to be that needs to happen right like just saying that something happened is one thing but when you say What is that specific thing that happened? So, for example, in your illustration, you talked about shuffling up a deck of cards, right? So if you shuffled up a deck of cards and I went through and all of the hearts, just the hearts, right, just the 13 hearts were all in order, right? Mm -hmm. Ace all the way through 12 or, you know, vice versa, right? All the way through 12, right? You and I would both look at that and be like. You're a really good card. Yeah. Be like you did yep. something, right? <laughs> you're like, a card shark. You, yeah, yeah you're a card shark, right? Like you and I would both be like, wait a second, because that is a sequence that we recognize as being specified complexity, right? It's yeah. complex because the whole deck of 52 cards is kind of all mishmashed together, right? And it's unique in that way. Again, it has never happened before, just as you were saying. I completely agree with that. But the difference would be that if you and I opened up a deck of cards and you shuffled it and then you we looked at it and then all those hearts were in a row, we, that would cause us both pause right and me giving an explanation and saying well this is just one of the you know 10 to 150 you know possibilities that could have happened you would you'd be like no 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 no. how'd you do that right like you know wait a second hold on go back let's let's talk about how you did that right i think that's more analogous to what we see in in life right in in the idea of a biogenesis of starting life and in the dna sequence than we do just a random on you know very low probability thing is going to happen. There is specified complexity, there is a sentence, there's a communication, there's code, there's information. Uh, all those are generally the same thing in this conversation here that is relaying a message and that is transferable to the next generation and so on and so forth and all the way down the line. That's kind of how I see it a little bit differently.
0: I understand that, but I think that still falls foul of the retrospectively looking back at its and going, wow, that looks amazing. Isn't it amazing that that thing happened to be like that? But there was four and a bit billion years in time, you know, since the very first thing and then that being constructed. And what we're forgetting is that it's possible for these things to be constructed on a piece by piece basis. And going back to my earlier suggestion about about the atom, and some things are inevitable purely because of physics and their structure. And so I think it should be expected that looking back at it, four and a half billion years later, that there will be some things that look strange, that look like they were intended to be that way, purely because of these processes and the laws of physics that that govern how they react, because we're looking at it at the other end of time. And if we were following them through, we would have seen randomised, apparently randomised processes. For example, randomised process, boiling water is randomised process. But we can't tell which water molecule is going to evaporate at any given point. But we do know that eventually they'll all evaporate. So it's the same, you know, with all these things. Basically, some, things are going to happen and things that are predictable are going to happen on a piecemeal basis. But then when you chain them all together, it's going to look something more than just randomised chance. But really what it is, is a lot of block of little things which are inevitable. And it's uh, that inevitability together creates the illusion of something that's more than it really is yeah. that's the position i take on that
1: yeah i mean i i think the only thing that i would disagree with in there is and again i don't again i don't know maybe you know but i was under the impression that like 150 was kind of the the baseline that you wouldn't there's no model of a biogenesis right now that says that like just two you know, for lack of a better term like rna proteins or something like that could bind together and then at another point three and then another point four that there needed to be 150 all coming together at the exact same time in the exact same way and so there isn't a pathway of a two then three then four step way process up to now we have dna that again maybe you're maybe I, you have other information i don't but. know
0: that's that's the limit of, of my knowledge so i don't know enough to be able to comment on that i think the only thing that i would say is if it's 150 now i am suspicious that it would be 154 billion years ago i I would expect it to be smaller but i would have to bow to what the
1: experts say on that i don't know enough well and i think it's a question of like what is the precursor to life like what what could have given rise to dna and that's what they're saying the only And again, it's not a solid thing. And every time, uh, you know, even Meyer mentions this in his book, every time that we get somewhere close, there's tons of intellectual um, meddling that goes on to get exactly what you kind of need that isn't representative of the atmosphere or the early conditions or anything like that at all. And so you're saying we've done it, but that doesn't replicate with the early conditions. You have to both show the early conditions conditions could have done that and that you had something that was then going to turn into dna and turn into life uh in general so yeah i mean again the, these aren't super convincing arguments if you're already kind of in one camp or the other i just think they're interesting things to kind of you know an area that you and i disagree on so it's fun to talk yes, about it is
0: going back to what i said before about exhausting all, all the natural options no. though the the science of how did the the first living cell and I understand that the definition of life isn't something that is easy and science avoids answering that question. It's very much a philosophical question. Right. But let's for the sake of argument call the first cell life. Yeah. How that first living cell came to be, I don't know. We, the science community, I, I don't know why I said we, I'm not a scientist either. Neither. Yeah. Yeah. But the science community is working hard on the subject is working very hard on trying to guess and replicate what might be the early earth and try various things and i know that there's lots of really interesting science going on there and i like reading about it every time they release something the point i'm making is we don't know what happened at this moment and we have ideas of what joins together to create the first rna we're fairly confident that rna became dna so we've kind of worked that bit out and now it's how did the first RNA molecules come to come about and was there something before that and what did those first primitive cells look like and what were the chemicals that were around and what was the environment was it a boiling puddle on a hot earth or was right. it something else was Comment, it acid yeah, yeah was it acidity involved did it live on a comet for a billion years in the cold beforehand all these questions and part of the challenge of science is working out how we can test these various scenarios but what we can do with the, the natural options is to a certain extent test some of these environments. We can put sure. a we can put a bell jar over something and we can heat it or we can prime it with certain chemicals and we can try and approximate things and, and see what happens and you know see the result and measure the results and say, Okay, well that happened, you know, may, maybe that's not you know, can we what happens if we tweak the components, etc.? To then introduce the, the supernatural as an interfering factor in that. I don't know how we would be able to test any of that. You know, did God cr- place that first cell there or was it more nuanced than that? I don't know how we could test that. So my the reason why I object to opening the door to supernatural is we haven't done enough of the natural testing to say, yeah, right, we know, That there can't be a natural explanation because we just haven't exhausted all the options. And it feels that introducing a good option, which we can't test the detail of, is almost giving up. I kind of see it as a lazy option because it introduces something that we can't validate.
1: Right. Uh, So I would say two things. Again, I would say, uh, you know, again, Meyer and his book, and I knew we were having this conversation. So I tried to, you know, listen to a little bit of the book and refresh my memory on some of it. But you know, we're talking about abductive reasoning, right? So when we're looking at abductive reasoning. We're saying, what's the best explanation uh, given the data that we do have? And so he, you know, he kind of has a long um, section in his book where he's talking about this idea of abductive reasoning. And so when he's very careful to say something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that it has to be a known explanation. So when we're looking at something like the information in the cell, the specified complexity in the cell, and again, I'm using specified complexity in a way that is well-defined and, and it's well defined in the computer world, in the software engineer world. It's also well defined in projects like SETI, right? So if SETI is out there, they have a criteria of what sort of information that they can use to say this is intelligent information that we that we're that's an information that we're getting that we think came from an intelligent source, and what's just you know random gibberish, right? So mm-hmm. that is a scientifically well defined term. I'm not just throwing it out there. Um, but when you have something like DNA or the information in the cell that meets this definition of specified complexity, the options to us are things like chance, are things like necessity, and things like intelligence. Because you and I both know, you and I were just talking, you design programs. Like Mm -hmm. That program had to come about, and, and I would be willing to say that, Matthew, you are very intelligent, and so you designed a program that was a product of intelligence, right? And so that is an explanation that Works right. That is an explanation mm-hmm. that should be available to us um, in order to be able to then categorize this this data that we have and abductively come to a conclusion to say what's the best explanation. And I think when it comes to again like things like uh, you know the waiting time problem, which we haven't talked about, but we talked about a little online, and and more specifically abiogenesis, the abductiveness argument, the adductive argument, I think works with intelligence. It doesn't have to be like, oh, well, how did God put this cell here? But it could be based on the way that the universe is designed. And this is um, Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy gave a TED Talk on this and basically said the way that the un- way that God has designed the universe with laws of nature as they are human beings and DNA and evolution was a foregone conclusion in that sense, right? And so I don't think you need the, oh, then God, you know, an angel from heaven came down and, you know, dropped a nice cell in the soup and, you know, mixed it up a little bit and, and blew on it and then poof, now we have life. I don't think that that has to be the way, the way it is at all. It's, you know, I think that there is a design, a necessity in the design to bring about life that makes more sense than natural processes or mere chance or, or whatever. I've got
0: a pushback on that yeah. um, to run run through the things. Yes, I'm a software developer by trade. So all day, every day is, is spent writing computer software. And the software that I'm responsible for, I inherited from my predecessor. I've been in my job coming up for three years now. And I, there was a predecessor before me. So sometimes I'm modifying and changing code written by my predecessor.
1: Yeah.
0: And sometimes I look at that and go, my goodness, that was a dumb way of doing that. And it was a dumb way of doing it purely because it's not the way I would like to do it. So the the measure by which I'm using to define whether or not that software is written intelligently, is quite simple. Did I write it? (laughs) (laughs) If I wrote it, it's clearly good. And if my predecessor wrote it, I clearly need to change it. All right. right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. So that's the measure. I've got something that I can use to measure it. And similarly with SETI. The, one of the criteria that they use when looking at planets is high carbon content of the atmosphere of the planet, because they associate high carbon content with an industrialized civilization, mm-hmm. much like our own. Our civilization is industrialized, there's a raised level of carbon atoms uh, in the atmosphere. There are other more complicated ways of doing it. There are certain atoms that have a structure which happens under specific processes so is not formed naturally and mm-hmm. I'm, unfortunately I should have gone and looked it up so I apologize to you and the listeners but there are some atoms that we can see in our atmosphere that we can see happen naturally and there are some atoms which happen as other than carbon which happen as a re- result of a, a heavy industrial uh, activity and the atoms are different and we can measure that through light spectrof- spectro spectro Proce- Spectrometers, yeah. That's the one. And, <laughs> I, I shouldn't do this when I'm drinking beer. I say that every <laughs> single time. I trip over the big long words. So anyway, so there's something specific that we we look for. But what we're looking for is measured off what we already know. So we know the effect that we have on our planet's atmosphere. So we look for the same effect on a distant planet's atmosphere to see if there's an intelligent life on there because we're expecting to see the same effect. Right. So it's it's something that we can measure because we know its source. And it's the same with me in the software, it's something I can measure because I know its source. So when we go to the spec try to apply that same to the cell, we don't know its source. We're still having that conversation. Is the source natural or is the source from a from the Christian God? Let's just say that. We don't we don't know it's the answer that we're trying to give so i don't think we can use the same process to answer that question
1: so are you so i just want to make sure that i'm clear so are you saying that abductive reasoning doesn't work or just doesn't work in this instance or i mean because some people would say that things like the um the, the higgs boson particle or uh even electrons are sought after by or concluded by abductive reasoning and, and so that's something that i feel like we see in science even natural selection would be an abductive you know historical process because we don't see how certain genes are turned on and on and off we just know kind of post hoc that they do and the yeah. best explanation is that there was something selecting for that. we call it natural selection, and that's that sense. Not we, but like you know scientists call it natural selection in that and so in in a sense, we're looking at the data and saying the best explanation, given the data that we have is this natural process we call natural selection, and it's you know because of a mutation, and there are certain genes are able to be you know turned on and off and whatever you know I don't have to explain evolution to your audience they 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 understand, but you know so I would say that that's the same thing, so in the same way, I think that that would be open to us. And, and again, then we can talk about what the nature of that designer is. Like I said before, it's possible that it could be uh, an off planet, could be an, an alien intelligence. But if we get to the point where we conclude this more likely an in intelligence than not, then we can do further investigation or a different type of investigation to say what is the nature of this intelligence? Is it uh, is it local within our universe? Is it you know beyond our universe and and whatnot? So I think that would be the the process that I would use to to investigate that. My
0: response there is then we need to build an apparatus to test the idea. Because the Higgs boson great idea, absolutely fabulous. I think it was about 50 years the idea had sat in a paper, the the particle had been hypothesized, and we had to build a shonking expensive experimental apparatus in order to be able to confirm its existence. The, The point is, we did it. We designed an experiment to test for it, And then we ran the experiment to test for it. And we got the result. My personal favorite example of this kind of thing is the LIGO detector. I think there's one built in the United States, although I can't remember where. I think there's one in Italy as well somewhere. Basically, it's two laser beams at right angles, about a mile long. They shine against a mirror and they they exist to detect gravitational waves. So gravitational wave comes through the Earth from a colliding pair of stars, however many light years away. And it creates a tiny little gravitational ripple going through and it wiggles the laser beam by the tiniest amount and we detect it when the light beams merge back together again. Utterly fascinating. When we first built this experiment, it didn't work. It didn't detect anything. And so the scientists got together to think about it and they said, we didn't build it sensitive enough. We need another Mm. $10 million so we can build it again. Was like, oh, all right then, in the pockets, do it again, <laughs> and then they got got the result. And I love that. I love the experiment. I'm amazed and fascinated by by what it can do. But th- the point is, we didn't just come up with the idea and go, yeah, we're going to accept that. Actually, right. built an apparatus to try and prove it. Because if it's wrong, we also need to know because that's yeah. information. Whether whether they're right or whether they're wrong, it's a learning opportunity. We've learned something and then we decide what the next step is. You know, if gravitational waves didn't it didn't exist or didn't happen, we would have to come up with another idea to explain things. And again, right. if the Higgs boson wasn't found, we'd have to come up with another idea to explain things, and they would be thinking of another experiment. You know, they've had so much fun with the Large Hadron Collider that they're planning on building an even bigger one to see what more they can find out. Right, yeah. So back to the wholesale thing, you know, we're doing what we can to work out how it could have happened naturally. And clever people are step by step, they're doing an experiment, they're working something out and okay, what can we build on that, what we've learned? And then they do the next bit of experimental thing. Yeah. What I don't know is if God did it, how do we test that? And that's the bit that I, I want to know. That's the, the big answer i want to say. Fine, if you want to propose that God did it, at what part was, Got involved? Was it that first cell, or was it the bits that made the cell, or was it a fully formed multiple cells together in a globe? I need to know which one of those options it was. And I need to know how you're going to test that.
1: Right. Well, yeah. And again, our pushback we've talked about this before is that that seems more like a how answer. And I don't think we have to know how in order to say that. Like we can say that, that X is true without necessarily knowing how it came about in, in a good portion of, of instances and so that would be a different explanation so if you're if it seems like what you're saying is we would need to know the systematic way that a free intelligent creature a free intelligent being that would you know supposedly exist outside of our reality works within like the materialistic laws that he created and I was just like well the, you're, you're you're working at it from a, a kind of a backwards angle in that sense again I'm using abductive logic and saying all of the things that we know we have in intelligent you know uh, programs we're looking at the cell we think that there's an, an analogous relationship between there and so we can conclude intelligence um even without the how now we can keep looking for a how I don't say that I don't think that that's a science stopper um to say that an intelligent agent did it uh but I don't think there needs to be more than that to to reach a valid conclusion that it happened that way you know what I mean again this isn't a sign stopper. I think it's a continuing on, but I think it would be a different category to then conclude, oh, like, this is how God did it, right? I just don't think that would even make sense in a theistic, abductive reasoning, you know, Yeah, but format. see, that's
0: exactly what I want to see, though, because when it came to the other examples that I gave you, the Higgs boson and, and LIGO, that's exactly what we did. We had a an idea of what might happen, and so we built the experiments to determine that the idea was true, and now we're working on how it works. Gravitational waves are still poorly understood in the sense that we don't fully understand all the mechanisms there. So there's still study going on there. And ditto with the Higgs boson, you know, the science hasn't stopped there. We're still trying to work out. But when the idea was there, we had to work out how it exists. And how it passes, one of the nicknames for the Higgs boson was the God particle. The God particle. Yeah. yeah, And one of the jokes was you can't have mass without it. You know, the, the vibrations of the Higgs particle gives mass to objects around it. That was partly how the idea of the Higgs boson came about. Yeah. We are answering the how in that. You know, part of the experiments is how do these interactions work and produce what we've got because one of the big mysteries of physics is there is air gaps in molecules and in atoms and between atoms yet when we bash those particles together to make a desk i've got a solid desk that i can bang on and you can hear it on the microphone my hand right. doesn't go through it yet there's more air than there is matter in the desk in my hand so it's one of these fundamental questions about physics why don't they pass through each other and it's partly a philosophical question as well. But, you know, the the interactions at these really tiny levels are important to understand that mechanism. And so we are building these enormous experiments to answer the hows of these really, really ridiculously tiny particles. So I want to push back and say, yes, I absolutely want to know the how God did it, because if the how God did it was at the Higgs boson, then we don't need to keep looking for anything else because it it stops there. But we need to look in order to find out whether there's anything more. So let's say, for example, someone says, you can stop looking for anything more. God created the Higgs boson. There's nothing beyond that. And it all is Higgs boson beyond. And so someone says, you know what, I'm going to keep looking. So this person keeps looking and then finds something. So that person who previously said God did it, is now been proven wrong because we have found that other thing so we need to do that that science to find that out so we, we need to keep going until we can't learn anymore because at the point that we can't learn anymore which to be honest i don't think will actually ever happen but that's besides the point right. um at the point that we can't learn anymore if there is if there, no answer works then yes we can say let's say that god did this bit But I'm uncomfortable with that as an option because I can't test how God did it and I can't test that God exists to do it. And if I can't do any of those tests, the blunt question is, why should I take the idea seriously at all?
1: Yeah, well, I think okay. So I think two things we're getting on. This is this is interesting. So I think two things. Number one, I was using I was using things like the Higgs boson and things like natural selection as a principled argument for the um, applicability of abductive reasoning. Yeah. Right. So I think that there's a categorical difference between concluding something like an electron exists, or the Higgs boson uh, particle exists, or natural selection is responsible for you know allele changes over time, and 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 god as a metaphysical explanation for all of reality right so there's a categorical difference the similarity is the method the abductive method that we use to get there now you've mentioned it several times and I, i i don't think that you're Saying this, you're putting this on me, but I don't think that there's that those are a God's or a science stopper. I don't think God's a science stopper in any way. I don't. I I think we should keep looking for for explanations, Mm -hmm. but I think we can still use something like the abductive argument to conclude something like intelligent design, right? So because that's a philosophical conclusion based on our scientific understanding and our data that we have, right? So Mm -hmm. I so I just want to again I want to put that out there. and I think the other the other thing that you just said is the the need for kind of testability in that mm-hmm. sense the need for some kind of how i think is a philosophically grounded statement but i don't think it can be applied to itself specifically as a proposition so i think the scientific method can be applied specifically to the physical reality but propositions aren't necessarily physical reality in the same sense the proposition all true statements would be you know testable in that sense right and testable in a scientific sense isn't itself testable by its own methodology okay. right so then so then there would have to be something else beyond that there'd have to be well true propositions are true because they are true beyond the scientific method or something like that and that would then encapsulate itself but then you have something true beyond what can be discovered by the scientific method am i am i it, it gets kind yeah, of a little bit of yeah, kind of, yeah it's,
0: it's possible I got lost a little bit there, I, but I I don't
1: see the, the problem and I don't see the concern. Um, I'm saying so, that your proposed methodology, when applied to itself, doesn't give you what you want. So okay, therefore, so that methodology can't necessarily be universal.
0: I can't test the process of testing things.
1: Right. You can test the implication of testing things but you're not actually testing the thing itself the proposition no i'm not testing the thing itself
0: but i'm i'm testing it in the sense that it tests other things so say for example yeah that's the implication yeah yeah i i know that the process of testing to find out what works works because when i test things i find out if they work and i do that enough times I find out that actually, oh, I've got a pair of speakers here, I'll plug them in, turn them on, okay, they work. I've got a mouse here, I'll move it, I'll see. If... So I test all these things on my desk because so I know that if I try it, I find out whether it works or not. So I right. now know that the whole proce- the whole idea of testing something is a really good way of finding out whether it works or not. So I've maybe not
1: tested the idea itself, but I've proved that the idea works by implementing the idea. Right, and so, and what that would mean, um... What that would mean is that there there is some there must therefore be some sort of connection, real world connection between true propositions and reality. Okay. so that means that there there are there can be true propositions apart from that which we can test uh, scientifically. But how would we know you just you just demonstrated it that there because your proposition can be applied And you can say, therefore, this true proposition, which I can't test directly, is true. There must be some sort of real world connection between the proposition and the fact that it it is true in the real world.
0: Yeah, that's where you've lost me, because I think the proposition actually is tested by its
1: application. Right. But its implication is tested. You didn't test the actual proposition is what I'm saying. The actual proposition itself cannot be tested yet is still true, but it's implications that when we apply that to the real world works out correctly. So therefore there's a connection between the truth of the proposition and the real world implication. I think
0: it's a distinction that's irrelevant to be quite honest. uh, I think on that one, because the attitude of, in order to know whether something works, I need to test it, works by the application of it. And I I, I get what you're saying, and I'm kind of really repeating myself here, but you're testing the methodology by implementing the methodology. If the methodology doesn't work, then implementing it won't work. So the implementation of the methodology is itself the test of the methodology. So I think it is self-testing. The application of it is itself a test of itself
1: yeah and, and i would agree but what i'm saying is that therefore the the extra therefore is the real connection between the proposit the true proposition and the real world right yep. you've, you've 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 tested the implication and you've come out with a positive result right and therefore then you're inferring back to you're logically connecting those two events the application of the principle and the truth of the principle itself. Okay, are you with me? So the truth of the principle is that true things are able to be tested. That's the principle, right? Just for lack of a better term. And then you apply that to the real world and we find out that, yes, it seems correct that when we test certain things, uh, they they turn out to be the result. So we have two things. We have the truth of the proposition and its application in the real world. Now, if, as you're saying, there must be something that connects those two things. There must be a, a link. There must be a bridge between those two things, between the application and the real world, right? Yep. Okay, so you follow me so far, right? Those of yep, us that are listening that's... on podcasts, I'm <laughs> using my hands, right? Yep. So there's two things, my left yeah, hand I'll, and my I'll, right hand. Yep. So that, so my question then becomes, what is that link between the two things, the true proposition and the the, tr- the application of that proposition? What is that link? Because without that link then they're disconnected. There's no connection between the two of them.
0: It would be, I would say there would be, have to be a descriptor. The proposition would have to contain a descriptor and the descriptor would be the instructions that the methodology follows. And that would be the link. So I would say it'll be encapsulated within it. So my proposition is I flick a light switch and my my desk light that you can't see because the camera's pointing the wrong way. I flick this switch, my desk light goes on. So, so the instruction is flick the switch, and the result is does the light go on or off? So I then go and action it, and so that's the link. I'm following the instruction that are in the proposition. So I would say
1: it doesn't need anything more than that. Right. No, but I'm I'm talking specifically about the principle of of, of testing, right? So you're you're okay. you're saying that a necessary condition in order for me to be able to adopt. Uh, You know, whatever proposition, whatever, you know, intelligent design, let's say, you need to know the how because you need to be able to test it, right? And I'm saying if it's true, right, in the real world, the proposition is true in the real world, that testing is a necessity in order to be able to say that something is true, there has to be some sort of connection between those two things, between a true proposition and reality itself, right? That you can't then test because you can't test the the proposition itself. You can only test the implications of that proposition. So this is like it, it gets really funky and really weird. And we probably lost most of your audience at this point. They're like, what is going on? But in an essence, I think this is a really important distinction because it provides us that metaphysical grounding or framework that we can that we can call on things like testing for any sort of explanation at all. Right. It's the metaphysical grounding that says abductive reasoning is likely to lead us to true conclusions based on what we have right so it, it's that sort of metaphysical framework that i think is really important that we look at and say what is the basis or what is the grounding of this metaphysical framework that's a lot of where for me again not for everybody but for me that's where a lot of the interesting god discussion really lies it's
0: interesting yes but i st- always will fall down to i like an interesting idea how do we know it's true that's my curiosity. How do I know it's true? And to the best of my knowledge, the most reliable way of doing that is testing. And that is demonstrated by the fact that we do tests all the time, every day, you know, all the technology that we have is done through testing. My software works through testing. So this is why our conversations always end up around, in some way or another, not always, yeah. but often yeah. end up around about this kind kind of discussion. And I think challenging the idea of testing doesn't really help. Because well, I'm not doing that. It could be that I'm misunderstanding what you're trying to to say then, because humans are notoriously curious. You know, Anyone who's had a toddler will know that humans are yeah. notoriously curious. And that curiosity comes out in touching everything. And usually touching something means it ends up in the mouth. So we are walking science experiments really you know there's a beautiful cartoon on the internet somewhere that the baby is the perfect example of a science experiment right because it tests absolutely everything um so as okay so i think this idea that or my idea that i want to see a, a kind of test to be able to differentiate between truth and not truth is testable by the application of that now i i, I get your pushback but I, I think if i'm honest i don't really fully understand your objection and partly because i, I don't really see why it why it's relevant yeah. um sorry relevant is probably the wrong word i don't see
1: why it's why do weight explanatory weight
0: yeah yeah i i don't see it as important as obviously you clearly see it and i think yeah. that's probably where we are you see it as an object, not not even as an objection. You see it as a counterpoint, but you put more weight on it than, than I do. And I, I'm probably quite dismissive of it if if we're honest about some of the conversations uh, that we've had, and yeah. um, because I think it's arguing a point which is unnecessary because I, I don't see it as, an impor- as, as important. I just wanna say, let's just get on with the testing because then we'll find out. Don't question the idea of testing. We find out what's true by testing it. Why are we asking whether or not we should test it? We should test it because then we find out. Right. And so that's kind of uh, the attitude that, that I come with. And if right. I can't test it, then why should I take it seriously? So I'm really much more basic uh, at that yeah. level.
1: Well, I mean, Matthew, I'm disappointed that you're putting your skeptical hat and your 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 scientific hat up on the the, the rungs here for a second. Let me explain. No, I'm just I'm just poking fun at you for you. But no, no. So I think here, and I think that's a valid um criticism. And so let me try to do my best to explain kind of where I'm coming from because I think it's really important. So what one of my goals here, and this often gets misunderstood, and it's much easier to have this conversation with somebody, uh, you know, face to face or dialoguing than, than yeah. On text. This, this conversation just doesn't work in text because I think too much gets lost yeah so because there is this epistemological necessity in testing right Mm -hmm. that's what kind of what you're relying on like hey i can't know something if i what i'm trying to do is i'm not trying to question whether or not testing is good because i think it is i know it is right what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to show you that there's another category of knowledge right something that you know before you got to the testing stage right which shows that testing is good for a certain category of thing but not all categories of things, if that makes sense. Okay. That's why I keep pushing this. To, so if, if if we can admit, if we can agree, find common ground, that there is something that we know, right, that stands outside of that testing arena, right, that is mm-hmm. the truth of the proposition cannot yep. be tested, yet it is true. That's what stands outside of that physical testing arena, right, then we can start asking the question, does anything else stand outside that testing arena? And if it does, how do we know that, right? Okay. okay That's why it's so important. I, okay. I th- okay, I've got a
0: different approach to this Saying I am saying the reason why we know testing is good is because historically we've done lots of testing. So I want to suggest that the idea that we should test didn't come first, but that curiosity testing came first. And by curiosity, fiddling and testing and manipulating, we went, oh, you know what? Testing actually works. And now we've got this idea that testing works. So I want to put that on the table as a suggestion for how we
1: now know that we should test is because before we knew that we should test, we were testing. Right. But again, that's in that same sense. That's abductive reasoning. You're saying the best explanation for all of these successful tests is abductively there's a true proposition out there that says that testing is a good a good uh way yeah. to ab- ascertain reality right so it's abducted yeah. in that sense um yeah. and it's also what the way that you're describing it it's also inductive right yeah. so it's it it's inductive right so it does from what i'm hearing you say it does leave open the door for there are things to be known that you didn't test or that testing isn't necessarily the way to you know like again that's where it gets a little bit sticky for me is if it's if the argument is deductive and saying it's deductively true that (laughs) the way to know things the the way to know things is through testing right so if you want to know something it must be tested that would be a deductive type statement right is different than saying we are more likely to come to truth if we can test something, that would be an inductive statement. What you described just there was an abductive statement saying, because we have all these successful tests, it seems it seems to be true that there is this true principle out there saying testing is the way to truth, right? Again, I'm just paraphrasing yep. here. So I would say those are, so which of those three do you feel like is the correct logic now that I've laid them out? Do you still hold the abductive in that sense, or is it inductive or is it deductive? I'm not really sure I care enough to nail, to be quite honest, um, because
0: we need well, to be able to test it. it, it yeah. Testing well, is, uh, is my, um,
1: my again. Because- but, but let me go back to the important piece of this. The the important piece is, is the methodology. That's really what we're discussing, because yeah. I, I think yes. that that's, that tends to be where we kind of get we tripped up a little bit. So if you say that it's inductively true, then you're saying, well, I'm opening the door to to that not being the case, right? Yeah. So then we don't need it. Right, you say it's nice to have, but I don't need that to I don't need that because it's possible that it it doesn't. That that would be that would be the implication if you go with inductive. If it's deductive, then it's some sort of law that governs the universe, right? It, it's some and then that yeah. would need an explanation. We would say, well, why is this law the way that it is, right? Why is that? If it's abductive, then I can still have a truth claim that is valid apart from testing. In the same way that I can abductively reason to an intelligence without knowing the how. Yeah. So I would say that's why it's important because if you just if you just punt and say nah, it doesn't I don't really know just testing whatever I'm saying but you could be leaving parts of reality out that are really important because you're just choosing to not come down on any one of those sides and I think that would that would be that would be a, a really important thing if i'm if i'm seeking truth i want to know if it's abductive or deductive or uh, inductive in that sense and that's why it's really important and this is just an example we could yeah. we could run the same type we, of we could with with lots of different propositions but this is just a good one to kind of camp on
0: i dislike the idea that there's knowledge that we just intuitively know It it might be true but i don't know how we would know it would be true so I object to that one. The other two, the or deductive and your inductive, I'm happy with both of those. I can't think of anything off the top of my head now, but there might be situations where testing something is either difficult or hard, and so we have to take it. Maybe this example will help. There's a thing called the Oort cloud, which is hypothesized to be not really a cloud, but like a dome of rock that so far out of our solar system that we can neither see it and we have not spent, sent any spacecraft to it. So we don't know that the Oort cloud exists. It's called the Oort cloud because I think it was a Dutch astronomer suggested that it was. Our only reason for thinking that it exists is that there are certain long period comets that come round the, to the Earth, which have a really long period. There's something like a thousand years or more. So Halley's comet is a short period comet that comes around every 76 odd years. That's a short period comet. It goes out beyond the orbit of Pluto and comes back. We can track it for the entirety of its orbit. Comets that come from the Oort cloud are so far away, it is many lifetimes between each time they come by. So we lack the scientific data to be able to say for certain how many objects there are or that this mass of, objects exist it's unlike the asteroid belt we know the asteroid belt is there because we can we can track them all yeah so the the test to be able to test for the orc cloud doesn't exist we can't do it it's too far away for us to be able to see with a telescope it's too thinly sparse for it to really be able to be detectable and it's too far away for any spacecraft that we've ever sent from earth to have arrived there yeah so and it's unlikely that anybody in their lifetime will, certainly nobody alive today will ever know. Maybe in a few hundred years, we might have a better idea. But probably the only way, in my mind, the only way to be able to prove it would be to send a daisy chain of satellites out so that they can send the message back down through the, the the chain of satellites. Now, we've got Voyager that's on the edge of our solar system, so we need to not send another one out there and they'll follow on each other. And eventually in a hundred in however many years, probably a thousand years, they'll get there and they'll be able to tell. So testing that is impractical. So it's talked about as a hypothesis in science. And the only reason why we know it is the data. This probably falls under what you were talking about, abductive reasoning. And I think this is where we come to different categories of things. I'm okay with accepting that the Oort cloud exists under that scenario knowing full well that I could never test it. I just accept that this is a hypothesis. It kind of makes sense that there's a mass of objects out there that have somehow been gravitationally attracted to our sun to go around in orbit. There might be other options. In fact, there are other options. This could just be random comments or whatever. But I think, and this is where it comes to the crucial thing, whether or not the Oort cloud is real has no impact on my life whatsoever. My acceptance, let's call it a belief, my belief that the Oort Cloud exists has no impact on my life at all. I don't need to change anything about my lifestyle at all to accommodate the belief that the Oort Cloud is there. And let's say tomorrow we find out that that whole idea is completely wrong and there's a completely different idea and this Oort Cloud idea was just a pipe dream and should never have been taken seriously let's say a science paper publishes that tomorrow and i'll read go, okay yeah fine they're wrong i'll now accept that idea what will it change about the way i live my life the way i live at home the way i do my job the way i think about other people nothing whatsoever right so i i have no problem whatsoever with accepting that kind of thing on the abductive level that we've been talking about When it comes to the Christian God, it's a very, very different story with the package that comes with abductively accepting that that God exists comes so much more. Which version of Christianity is right? Do I accept it? How does that change how I think about people, how I behave? Do I now need to commit to going to church every Sunday morning? Have I lost that fabulous podcast editing time that I have uh, every week? all all those kind of things, it will have a much more significant uh, impact on my life. So I think I am justified in saying if you want me to accept that proposal on these impacts on my life, then I need more than just that kind of reasoning. I I, I, I need more. And for me to change how I behave, change how I think, re-adopt a lifestyle of praying, reading my Bible, etc., all those changes I need something quite a lot more than that to implement that change. So that's why I push back so much harder on the God idea and say, I need a way of knowing that it's true. The hypothesized idea, because we can't explain some science things, isn't good enough for me. I need much, much more.
1: Yeah. no and I again, I hear what you're saying and i I'm fully on board with that. I wasn't arguing for an empty tomb in, <laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, with, with our uh, with our, our our biogenesis slash you know evolution conversation but I think yeah. again, if that was possible, right, like if, if somebody listening, you or somebody else was like, that's an interesting idea, I want to look into that more, uh, there's lots of resources out there, and, and that's fine, and that could open the door for what kind of intelligence is this, and you could look at other things or whatnot and, and go down that road, and that might end up in an empty tomb, uh, you know, affirmation. It might not. I, I'm not saying that it it has to. I think there's lots of, uh, you know, there'd be lots of steps between an acceptance of an intelligent designer and evolution and an empty tomb and all the things that you're saying going to church on Sunday and all the stuff that goes with that, right? I get that. Um, but what I'm what I'm talking about is merely um, a met, trying to find methodological common ground, right? Because I think that that's a hindrance, right, on some level to adopting so, so if so, if I feel like, hey, I can present something that you already agree with, right, and show you how that. Uh, thing that you already agree with necessitates this other belief. Mm-hmm. Then to me, it seems like you would have to believe that other thing. And whether that other thing is the planopy of you know the Christian tradition, or whether that other thing is an intelligent designer, or whether that other thing is a different methodology than the one that you have right now, mm-hmm. that that's a that's a step in another direction, right? That that's what I'm saying. So like, uh, for me, I think there's tons of steps in between there. But all I'm focusing on in this instance would be something along the lines of uh, looking at a possible different methodological viewpoint of reality that then would allow us to then bring in other different data pieces that we could look at with that new methodology. And so that, that that's all I'm saying. So something like the or, the orb cloud, right? I, I get that. that. that's That's out there that may not have any effect on your life. But to be honest, there may not be any effect on your life if you affirmed an intelligent designer. If you just said, yeah, there's an intelligent designer out there, it could be an alien on some distant planet, it could be the god of the universe, it could be the Christian god, I have no idea, but intelligent design seems like a more reasonable conclusion based on the data than that. And you could just go on with your life, you could still edit your podcast on Sunday mornings, has nothing that has nothing to necessarily uh, – that has no effect on it. Now, that may cause you to say, well, I'm interested in finding out what's what information is out there about this designer and how do I know what, what category that designer fits in. But you could leave it. I know a guy named Dennis who runs an intelligent design page. Who is literally an atheist. He is an atheist. He affirms intelligent design. He's kind of a unicorn type guy, right? You're just like, whoa, hold on, like, take me through that. How you, that that works for you? But uh, again, he's in that same boat. He uses the same arguments. He's a scientist. He's a biologist. He's PhD level, publishing all that jazz. Uh, doesn't believe in God, but affirms intelligent design. So. Interesting. So, yeah, so again, so it, it's out there, but i'm I'm focused again to go back. I'm focused, and we could probably wrap it up. I'm more focused on just the methodological piece because I think that's really important. you know yeah. if if I can find something like like cause and effect, right that you that you affirm is true, right? And I can show you that how that's a metaphysical principle that must go beyond our space time continuum, right, our space time right and and therefore become a metaphysical principle well that's a change in methodology that now we can then talk about that doesn't mean that yeah. god exists right that it's not like cause and effects is metaphysical and therefore jesus walked out of the grave and i think there's a lot of steps in between there yeah. but that's typically what i'm when i'm having conversations with people Like yourself, I'm typically trying to focus on that methodological piece because I think there's such a grand divide between that. I think there are things that you affirm that I would consider that fall in that methodological category or things that fall outside of the scientific method that we can know that then could create a bridge to having a new methodology that I think would open up to other questions, other interesting questions. Again, not necessarily concluding that God exists, just other questions that exist outside of that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I don't want to lose any more listeners to this, but yeah, thank you for that. We're, there's probably still much more earth sure. we need to furrow on, on this particular subject. But I'd like to move. And I'm not necessarily expecting you to have the answer to this question, but this is anybody listening. If Jonathan McClatchy happens to listen or any of his friends from biolocus actually, I'm really intrigued by the answer to this question because I don't think I've asked it before. And I'd like to kind of know what the position is. And that's in the terms of intelligent design, what are they proposing the starting points of this? Because I know with young earth creation, it's the animals that we see today were created as we see them today. And obviously evolution denies that completely. And, that's, and evolution affirms that everything that's alive today started from a single cell, the same single celled organism, however many million years ago it was. And that has gradually divided and complexified to get to the divergence that we see today. Where between those two does intelligent design sit? Are there individual seed species which started, which have each come to what we know today? Or is it the same path that evolution took, just an intelligent designer helping it along? Or is there another option? Or are there different options within the intelligent design
1: camp? Well, there are definitely different options within the intelligent design camp, and here's why I I can confidently say that. Again, I've mentioned BioLogos. BioLogos would essentially take the the standard evolutionary methodological naturalism model and put it on a theistic backdrop, like a a Christian theistic backdrop. Now, again, how they do that is very nuanced and very well thought out, and they have lots of published articles. So if anyone wants to read how they're actually making that connection – the information's there. But even Stephen Meyer in that interview that I was mentioning earlier where he was talking to Michael Shermer it highlighted some differences between BioLogos and his own perspective or the Discovery Institute perspective, if you will. So uh, I think one of the major things is that whether or not you consider it tinkering would be uh, an interesting question. I don't think they would use the word tinkering, but they think that God intervened in some points and specifically directed certain species uh, it, maybe in away from kind of this naturalistic and again, That's just one perspective. I don't think the Discovery Institute would necessarily agree with what I just said. But I think that there's kind of a planopy of different ways you can parse that out, right? But typically, the way that I've understood intelligent design uh, in the circles that I run in is that when we look at kind of what accounts for the naturalistic change over time doesn't have enough time without specific two or three changes in a certain evolutionary generation, in order to account for the diversity that we have on the planet, right? And the example that that McClatchy usually gives is something like the whale to horse transition, right? There there has to be something like nine changes, nine genetic changes in order to get from the whale to the horse. And there just isn't enough, there isn't enough, enough generations for that to even take place given the standard model that we have right now. So you have to account for something like that. So as where I think BioLogos would just say, yep, We're taking the standard evolutionary model. I think the intelligent designers tend to push back and say, no, there seems to be these anomalies that don't fit within that model. And and therefore, it needs something else. It needs some sort of supernatural, if you will, intelligent designer. But again, I would say BioLogos would agree on some level with the label intelligent design because they believe that the universe itself was set up by an intelligence and therefore had some influence in how that all came about. So, yeah.
0: Thank you. It's definitely an area which I'm intrigued by. In, yeah. in how in how they differentiate the starting points of where God would have been involved and or was God involved in multiple parts or God sets off and walk away, there are multiple
1: options. And- yeah, a fascinating uh, in this book, the Design Revolution. Again, and some of this has been debunked. I, I will say this: so if any of your listeners are like, "Well, he keeps referencing the, the design," I don't think all the ideas in here are lock, stock, and 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 ready to go. I think some of them have been debunked, but I think the vast majority are still still hold true he posits the quantum uncertainty principle of where god could possibly have influence in the quantum realm right that that's his thesis because because we don't know right we don't know when certain you know um waveforms will collapse he's saying because there's this realm of randomness or uncertainty that's where god could have certain atoms or certain molecules or whatever collapse at a certain time that he has thus designed. And in that case, it would be very untectable, but it is a plausible model. So again, I'm not saying, again, that I agree with that model. I'm just saying that he lays that out in his book in right. some, some detail. Yeah,
0: my immediate concern about that is it feels to me, and again, this is me being hyper-skeptical. I'll wave that flag and admit to it straight yeah. off. But it feels to me like he's intentionally put God in a place that God couldn't be detected
1: right so, well yeah yeah again yeah that would be uh that would be a way but again and he may make a better argument that i'm paraphrasing yeah. right now i've i read this book about seven years ago and i've just kind of leafed through some of the different more important parts that i tend to use on a regular basis but i know it's chapter 22 he talks about the uh, uncertainty principle so uh, again for what it's worth if anyone's interested the design yeah. revolution by william Dembski is an interesting read i've not read enough by
0: logos to know what. Um, scientific methodology they've proposed but i would love to see some kind of proposal for an area in in evolutionary history whatever if anyone's proposing that god intervened at a point i would like to see some kind of proposal to a way in which we could detect it you know, mm. not looking at this looks improbable, therefore I think God, I want something that's a bit more certain than that. Something that yeah. says, I would expect to see this fingerprint from God because science can't do it. And I'd like to see scientists say, yeah, we're right. Science can't do that. OK, let's go find it. I'd like to see something that's got a little bit more meat to it. Something that will be harder to explain away.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Uh, that is what that would give me sleepless nights.
1: Yeah. Frankly. <laughs> Well, hopefully that's out there, and for my.
0: Perspective. <laughs> You'll hear it first if I find out about it. Okay, that, that, good, that's
1: good. One thing that you and I had talked about in the past was that if the evolutionary model is kind of true, right? Does that somehow circumnavigate Adam and Eve? And if Adam and Eve weren't real people, real historical yeah. people, does that negate the Jesus story or the Jesus necessity or anything like that? So I know you've talked about that in the past, and we've had that conversation online a few times. And I, again, I don't know if we can. I don't know if we can come to the end of that, so it might not be worth it to open the can of worms this is, far into the program. But I know that is something that you and I have talked about. in the it, past. it
0: is something that fairly accurately describes a lot of my early thinking from my deconstruction was evolution meant Adam and Eve, as described in Genesis, could not have existed. That was the conclusion I came to quite mm-hmm. early on. So my thought processes basically went, well, what do I do about that? You know, we're we're really confident that the minimum human population was at at lowest a few hundred individuals, probably a few thousand. It was never a single pair. Where do we go from that? What do we do with that information? So I thought that through and I thought it through literally, literalistically from my young earth creationist thing. So evolution meant no Adam and Eve. It was that black and white. And this was 15 years ago. So Joshua Somedas' book didn't exist at that point and other books like that, and I don't know if you've listened to the conversation that I had with Joshua Somedas, but yes. I did say, you, you have listened to it, so you'll mm-hmm. know the bit that I'm talking about, I did say to Joshua Somedas in it, his book was the only book that made me stop and think, what if I'd read this book 10 years ago? What mm. if this book had been around when I was abandoning my my Christian faith? Could it have saved me then? And I, it's the only Christian literature that I've interacted with in the last 15 years that has made me ask that question mm. uh, and, I, and I genuinely mean that as a compliment now I don't uh, agree with is approved so I don't agree isn't the right idea this is an interesting idea I don't accept it as, as truth but it's definitely yeah. an interesting idea it's possible that it might have sent me on a different trajectory mm. if I'd been exposed to Joshua's idea 10 years ago but who knows? That didn't happen. And here I am now as a as a hard-nosed, fundamentalist, materialist, atheist. And <laughs> how you pulled me off that ledge, I, I really don't know. But yes, yeah, so I got to this point where evolution meant no Adam and Eve, no Adam and Eve meant no original sin. No original sin meant no requirement for Jesus. No requirement for Jesus means the whole story is pointless. Therefore, why should I believe anything in it? Yeah. it obviously took me more than three seconds to, <laughs> to go through that you know this was a, a long painful thoughtful process but if i was to condense it into its most concise that's probably the the sentence that i could give it it is clearly more complicated than that it's clearly far more involved than that it clearly involved an awful lot of emotional torment emotional yeah. pain concern and all those things that go with a uh, deconstruction and deconversion, all of that was there. But that's the most pure nugget of it that the, the, the can garner.
1: No, I think that's, and that's, again, that's really interesting. I mean, I don't know how much I can, you know, push back on some of that. I, 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 I do think that that is a process that a lot of people have Found themselves in a lot of those questions. I think are common from my experience of yep. talking talking to people that have mm-hmm. gone on that journey as well. And yeah, I think that that's one of the things. If I could give you know some hope to maybe that someone that's on a similar journey, I would I would read Joshua Ramidas' book. I think you know the the genealogical Adam and Eve is the name of his book. I have a few conversations with him on my channel as well. So if anyone's interested, you can you know search dealing with deconstruction and you know he and I have had a few conversations on my channel. One specifically about his book and two on just kind of the ethos of American evangelicalism, which I loved his insight on that as well. So, yeah, I mean, again, I I think there are similarities to our question, to your question specifically about what is a Christian, right? We can ask a similar question to say, what does it mean to be a human? What, what, what are the necessity, you know, the... What is entailed in in humanity, right? And on one point, you could look at it purely materialistically and just say a human is, you know, someone that has human DNA and has certain characteristics and whatnot. On from a theological, from a Christian standpoint, there might be this other thing called the image of God, right? That that is our ability to reason, to, you know, have rationality, to be self-aware, to create, you know, that just some of the, uh, some, some people might say the spirit or the soul is part of that image of God. And so when we look at it from that, we can say on one hand, yes, scientifically, I will, I could affirm that humans only could have been, you know, down to a couple hundred. Right, ten thousand is usually the number that I hear. On the low end, it's usually around two thousand. But let, you know, let's just add in some error bars in there. But that wouldn't necessarily tell us whether or not any of those people had a soul or were set apart with the image of God from a theological standpoint. So that, again, that wouldn't be a question. I would look at that wouldn't be a question for science. Science would never be able to discover that. They wouldn't, especially now doing historical science. There's no bones you could dig up to say, oh, well, these person, you know, had the image of God and these people didn't have the image of God. So what we're our reasoning for that would be a theological reasoning. And by that I mean we would look at what scripture teaches and we would look at our experience of natural you know, observations and and know that there's there is something noticeably different between us and other animals, right? Mm-hmm. And say, well, again, we're using this kind of abductive process. So yeah, I mean, again, I I agree with you from a scientific standpoint. That's why I thought Joshua Swaminas' book did such a good job kind of raising some of those questions and saying, what if we thought about it like this? You know, science isn't going to answer this question specifically. We're looking at a different question. We're looking at a theological question and what tools would we use or implement in order to get answers to that type of question. So yeah, I, I think your experiences is not atypical, if that makes sense, my double nickname. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, quite. I'm sure it's not unique, unique at all. So um, I'd like to move on then completely. Let's go on to a completely different sure. subject, a little bit more lighthearted, uh, I hope. We had a very brief interaction, I think it was only today, actually, about language on the um, unbelievable uh, board. Swearing. Do you have any thoughts about swearing? Do you swear? Do you like to utter a good cuss word when you're feeling frustrated?
1: That's really interesting. I love like um, to
0: see that you're laughing.
1: I'm, yeah. Like you're laughing. No, no, it's funny. I'm laughing because like I said at the very beginning, I've done some work in the production world. I've been on tour with some bands and uh, <laughs> I, I got to do this thing in America. We have this thing called the uh, stage hand union. And in the stage hand union, if you are a traveling you know, musician or a show or whatever, and you travel on to a different town there's the stagehands or the stagehand union in that town is called in to help set up your show. So there may be something like, you know, 15 or 20 guys that work or girls that work for the show. And then there may be like 30 to 60 uh, stagehand people that live in that town that come in and help set the show up, help run the show and then tear everything down and put it back in the trucks. In that world, it's very macho, right? There's lots of swearing. It's the, you know, very typical, like toxic masculinity, perhaps environment that you can imagine very shop-esque. And so in that environment, throwing out a swear word is totally normal, right? You're actually abnormal if you don't swear on a fairly regular basis, just in casual conversation. But in my small group last night for church, if I would use the same language that I did at a show for in a stagehand show or whatever, everyone would look at me like I'm some kind of crazy person. It just wouldn't translate. So language in that sense is a little bit contextual. And I I think You can use it for certain emphases and, uh, you know, in storytelling and whatnot. Uh, I do let out a swear word every once in a while when, uh, you know, slam my hand or, you know, extremely frustrated or with, you know, company that doesn't necessarily uh, wouldn't look down on me. You know, my my wife and I tend to do that every once in a while where we're just like, what the, you know, and we're just, just having a blow off steam kind of conversation. But it's not something that I use in regular, normal, everyday you know, just this dialogue. And again, what is a swear word is different depending on where you're at. Right. Yeah, so you, maybe our list of swear words might be different. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, affirm this, right. Like uh, here in America, we have these pouches that that are attached as you listed know, a purse esque, and they're called a fanny pack. Right. <laughs> and I know that in in, in England, I just swore and Everybody, everyone's like, what yeah. did you just say? Right. But for me, that's just, that's, that's like a purse type thing that we just wear. And so that would be totally different. I and mean, so it's like, okay, but there are some words that made us cross, over that they're kind of swear yeah. words everywhere but again that's cultural in some sense textual in that.
0: yeah i know an anecdote of a british person on holiday in the states and is something went wrong i think the his hire car broke down and it was having trouble fixing it, it might have even been he needed to change the tire and it it was frustrated it took longer than it should do and by the time he was finished there was a couple of uh locals around just giving him a hand and he finished it off and he went the way only a British person could say, I could really do with a fag
1: right now. (laughs) There's a cigarette here in the UK. Yep, yep. Yep. You know, so yeah. I know I I knew what you were talking about in that context. <laughs> yeah, but they're probably like, you need a what? Like what? <laughs> yeah. These British, they're crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or you know, again, like uh, I, I mean, I, I'm assuming this is uh, not necessarily a kid show, but like there's something like bloody, like just using the term bloody yeah. is is seen as a swear word in your culture in your context and not necessarily here. I mean, so you know, my, I remember my seven year old daughter said it one time because she heard it on a YouTube video or somewhere, and she was just talking, she was just playing. Right. And we're just like, whoa, that's <laughs> like, <laughs> but if she probably said that around, you're like, you know, your parents, they would be like, what go to your room. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. It's just, it, yeah. So I, I think in general, I mean, you and I are an example. We've been talking for, you know, o- over an hour and a half at this point, and neither of us have had to use any kind of vulgar language to get our points across. I think my general ethos is in normal, standard respectful dialogue it's just not necessary unless it's an illustration or an illustrated point like we've been doing but um that's just kind of yeah. my general my general thought i think if i start having to use swear words i'm going into a place that's less dialoguey and more kind of assertive and and preachy in that sense and that's i don't fan it i don't think it's necessary for me but yeah
0: i get that and talking of children's swaying. My daughter's got a job. She works two evenings a week at a local pizza place, uh, making pizzas for people to get for takeout. Mm -hmm. And she had a particularly bad shift one day. So I went to pick her up at the end of her shift and she got in the car. And the first thing she did was express how frustrating the shift had been for her. And she used a swear word as part of it. And I thought, fine, I am so glad that you as a 17-year-old feel comfortable enough to swear in my presence like that. Because when I was 17, I would have been afraid to use that language in front of my parents. And I'm glad that you don't have that same fear of me. So that was the the thought. I obviously don't want to encourage it. Right. (laughs) But at the same time, it was appropriate for the context and she wasn't afraid to do it. And I was quite fine with that. Interestingly, on a psychological level, and it'll be interesting to hear you psychoanalyse my experience here. As a Christian, I was very much of the attitude that you've just described, you know, why, what, there is no point in swearing. There are plenty enough suitable adjectives in the English language. We don't need to pepper them with swear words. All it does is it it shows unsophisticated attitude uh, to the beauty of our language. That that was how I felt. And I would all pretty much go out of my way to avoid swearing. When I accepted that I was no longer a believer and I was now atheist. I went the other way and it was almost like I was making up for all those (laughs) years which I didn't swear and I swore an awful lot, sometimes unnecessarily so. It's tapered off now. There are some, if you go through my back catalogue of episodes here, there are some episodes where I've sworn. The most notable one is there's an episode where I really hammer on young earth creationism and I call it dangerous and I Mm -hmm. drop the F-bomb in that sentence. But generally, I don't often swear in in episodes and I try to tag them as as not clean um, uh, if there's more than a certain level of swearing in them. So I've tapered down, but I definitely had that making up for lost time. Let's get those swear words out there at every opportunity in the first few years uh, uh, after I uh, deconverted.
1: (laughs) No, that's fine. And I do, I think, I mean, I think there are biblical principles, again, to back that up, like, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And and again, I think mm-hmm. unwholesome talk is the principle, but the context decides what is and what isn't unwholesome talk. So again, so yep. the context of being with, you know, the guys in the state chain union, unwholesome talk is viewed differently than in my small group or with my grandma or with my parents or whatever, you know? So I, I again, I think that that the principle of unwholesome talk is something that I try to uphold to, but I think I try to be aware of the, the context in which i'm using it in
0: okay i'm sure we could find more subjects to talk about but it's probably a a good time to draw a halt here i don't want to make my editing job too big and i like to keep my episodes below two hours and we're hitting the point where cuts are gonna have to get deep if i'm gonna make it uh, less than two hours let's call it a night then before i give you the last question though where can people find you online
1: YouTube.com slash dealing with deconstruction is my YouTube channel. YouTube.com slash one minute apologist. Uh, you'll see me every Wednesday be on the show with Bobby for twenty five minutes. We run a show called Unapologetic. And then he has a show that runs Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at the call in show. So people can call in the numbers up there it it live streams on our channel as well. So that's where you can find me. The church can that they I work at call in? Yeah. Anybody can call in. Yep. The number's right there on the screen. You can call in. It's Pacific time. So if any of your UK listeners, uh, it'd probably be, I think it's seven o'clock, six to seven here. Yeah, so that's okay. probably almost midnight there. But um, but anybody else, this is I mean again, you can call in, you could message in on the pastor's respective Facebook page, and they sometimes take those questions at a different time as well. So so yeah, if you have any questions about anything at all, Bobby would love to answer some of those on the pastor's respective show. And the church that I work at is called Image Church. You can find it at imagechurch.live. We have some messages up there and just some information. We're eventually going to be starting an online campus that's primarily going to uh, hang out mostly on Facebook, but there'll be you know messages and. So if any Christians want to check out the church that I work at, I don't preach much. That's not my role. That's Bobby's role. So you're not really going to find me preaching a whole lot, but I lead worship on a fairly regular basis and kind of handle a lot of the other back end stuff and and whatnot, pastoring and and whatnot. So,
0: Excellent. Thank you. I do listen to your One Minute Apologist podcast. Oh, sweet. Thanks. I have a very serious problem. My podcast listing list is so huge i actually genuinely have trouble keeping up with i've only (laughs) this week hit the episodes that started 2022 (laughs) so i've I've got a bad blog i i need to get quite severe with um with some of the episodes i listen to so i don't have time for youtube people keep telling me You need to watch YouTube, There are really good atheists and discussions on YouTube. You need to have your own YouTube channel. I'm like, I don't have the time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Where am I I
0: going to fit it in?
1: (laughs) I mean, I spend a good portion of my day, you know, getting at my computer, designing stuff and editing, and I always have some kind of YouTube video on in the background as I'm doing whatever, just to kind of, instead of listening to music, I tend to listen to YouTube videos, debates or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's hard to keep up, isn't it? You have to be yeah. quite, quite ruthless with the cutting sometimes. unfortunately.
1: Yes. yes, definitely. So
0: Braxton Hunter did 10 questions at the end of last year in his YouTube video. Okay. And Andrew and I did an episode answering those questions. Okay. And then Braxton did a response video to the answers to one of our questions. So you're getting. And then Andrew and I have done a response to Braxton's response to our response (laughs) to his Oh, goodness. This is going to get messy. So anyway, I'm halfway through editing that. One of the things that Braxton did say at the end, almost as an aside, was he thinks that people who were once Christians and then have gone out of Christianity, it's much harder to reach those people to get them back again. Those are the hardest people to reach. Mm. Because they've been there, they understand the arguments, etc. I agree with Braxton. I, I I think he's right on that. Do you agree? Do you have a strategy that's different for the people like myself who fall into that category? I understand I've asked you a 20-minute question and I've only got 20 seconds to say goodbye to you, but give it your best shot.
1: Yeah, I would say I think it depends a little bit on the reason that they left. So if they left over a largely... you know emotional reasons which which again there's a plenitude of emotional reasons I'm not downplaying any of those but if it was a little bit more you know kind of a flippant you know something bad happened at a church or something bad happened with a christian and they kind of just wrote the whole thing off because of that i would say that that type of person is probably easier to get back in than the person that had a full fledged deconstruction process that ended in a deconversion story and again just as an anecdote to that we i was talking to again someone in our small group last night and they were saying that they had kind of that walking away that kind of just emotional just I'm done with this and uh, a year and a half in they you know had a roommate that was a you know a christian that you know helped support them and pray for them and whatever and they had a christian background and so at that point she would probably say that no she wasn't a believer and she wasn't a christian or whatnot going back to our previous our first you know first question right but then she said this other person lived like Jesus so much that I got curious again and started asking them some questions and it was a short time after that, that they were like I'm back in I'm a Christian, going to church, serving, or whatever. So I would say that story is probably a little bit more common than the story of, man, I've been on a journey of researching for four or five years and, you know, ended up walking away from my faith. I would say that person's probably, I would agree that that's much more difficult.
0: Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. I'm just nodding in agreement. I'm not even going to say anything more than that. I, I think you're absolutely right. So Let's go for the final question then, the question that I like to make sure that all of my Christian guests uh, get when they come onto the podcast. Do you have a favourite biblical character and who is it?
1: Yeah, so... Other than Jesus, right, well, let's just put Jesus aside because that's kind of just a given. (laughs) We've had him once. Right, right, right. I'm gonna go with someone kind of a little bit unique that's just really popped up in the past probably three months or so for me, and that's Esther. Esther as a character in the Bible, the book of Esther. But I think one of the things that I like about Esther is her boldness, just, you know, approaching the king and her relationship with her uncle Mordecai and just how that whole book kind of plays out. You really see uh, a humbleness and tenderness in her approach, just a respect that she has for the king, but you also see a fervor and passion for her people that she's willing to kind of go above and beyond and literally risk her life asking some of the questions that she does. So I think that's a good model to live by in this sense. Again, I'm not a female, but admiring Esther's character and her forcefulness with a tender undertone that you can kind of read in the text. So I've been really intrigued. My wife is going through a a study with the ladies from our church on the book of Esther, and so I've kind of been tag-teaming along with that a little bit and i've just really enjoyed it so yeah esther would be i would say esther right now
0: thank you it's been a very long time since i've read the book of esther and i know i've done bible studies on esther before and the similar themes that you've just mentioned definitely came out i've got memories of those themes coming out yeah. on the conversation and the book has definitely had enough of an impact on me that i I know the bit you're talking about, about the trepidation with uh, approaching the king. Those passages and those verses are so full of tension that they stick with me. I don't know yeah. when I last read anything in the Bible. And I don't know when I last read Esther. But that memory of, of that moment has, yeah. has stuck with me. It, yeah, it, it's it, the, it is. It's,
1: uh, it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God once. But yet it's kind of it's like there. It's like in the undertone like going on now
0: there's a question for a quiz show yeah yeah it's fascinating fun fact there we go i'm going to test that one out on someone yeah there you go thank you very much tim i expected that we would have a pleasant and a decent conversation and we did have a pleasant and a decent conversation we pushed a little bit back against each other but it was done in exactly the way i expected it to be may these kinds of conversations continue Neither of us has, I don't think, shifted the other one much, but hopefully there's a bit of an understanding. I'm sure there's plenty that we can unpack around methodology and epistemology and how we approach knowledge and all that. You speak far more fluent philosophy than I do, so there's probably some catching up that I need to do to be able to get up so that we can actually talk using words that we both understand. And um, you were
1: science. I'm not a science guy at all. I mean, I've taken a, a philosophy of science class and I've read several, you know, science, science books, but I'm not by trade a scientist at all. I much more hang out in the world of philosophy and all that stuff. So, yeah, I was enjoying hearing you talk science in that
0: manner. I get very excitable when I'm talking about yeah. science. I, I think it shows, but yeah, yes, yes, I do. Yeah. So with that, Thanks very much, uh, Tim. I'll see you online probably tomorrow. Dear listeners, thank you for getting through this and until next time, be reasonable. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to ReasonPress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.